Hello, and welcome to Wealth is Possible, the show where we talk about personal finance and building wealth. We are your hosts, Vino, Vince, and Evan. We'll be discussing various methods of building wealth and growing your cash flow, including the stock market, real estate, cryptocurrency, and various business ventures. guys for tuning in to another episode of wealth is possible on today's show we're talking about tax tips on starting and operating a business and tax tips on buying and selling real estate with taryn santakumar who's a cpa and partner at grandview realty thanks, thanks. for being on thanks, thanks for having me guys no uh i've been seeing the reels uh being posted and whatnot yeah. so uh yeah. didn't expect to be here so quickly <laughs> now we're, we're super happy to have you on 100%. i'm sure our viewers are going to learn a lot about your field and yeah, absolutely. I think we'll we'll try to cover the tax implications of mm-hmm. you know buying and selling real estate, mm-hmm. of uh, starting and operating a business. Mm-hmm. Uh, when should you incorporate? Uh, we'll, we'll try to get in and uh, cover as much as possible. Maybe some landlord and tenant board stories oh, as yeah, well. Right? Yeah. So part of the real estate, but uh, yeah. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll why don't we it. start off by telling us a little bit about your upbringing and the beginning of your story? Yeah, give, give us your background. Yeah. Let, let, sure, let, let sure. everybody know who you are and shit. Sure, sure, sure. So um, my parents, you know, hardworking immigrant parents, mm-hmm. uh, they came to the country right away. They started uh, delivering the Toronto Sun when, uh, you know, print was a thing back then. And uh, so 364 days a year, no matter rain, snow, van broke down, you're, you're going out and you're delivering the papers, right? So... We didn't really know much, you know, my parents leave at around one in the morning, come by 7.30, you know, we open our eyes and uh, the lunches are ready and we're off to school, right? Mm-hmm. So that was really the hustle that my parents kind of went through at the beginning to kind of get to, you know, the middle class eventually. But that uh, upbringing really taught me because uh, my my mom and my dad used to do the, the delivery together. So one time my mom had a thyroid surgery, I went on the, on the delivery that day and uh, I was tying the papers and... Uh, and I see my dad, you know, in the snow, pulling these papers, dropping them off. It's super cold, right? Like, and uh, pretty eye-opening experience a couple times doing that. So I was probably like around 12 at that time, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, really learned the value of money just, just off of seeing that and how my parents were working pretty hard. And then uh, fast forward, you know, I went to Mary Ward. It was like a self-directed uh, high school. Um, from there, I went to laurier and uh then became a cpa and then a realtor and we'll get into that but uh really just immigrant story so terrence I, i'm off camera you're actually telling us about um your whole swimming school that you kind of started off you want to kind of go into the whole swimming school and how you kind of got started and you know what what the pros and cons of starting that swimming school was and sure. how that contributed to who you are right now yeah so the swim school started once i became a lifeguard swim instructor and was doing that for a couple of years but originally how that started was i was 12 years old uh, doing ultra one, super late to the swimming game, I guess you could say, or learning how to swim. <laughs> and uh, it just started off because my aunt was like, you know, we're going to have the, the my cousins were going to be enrolled. And my aunt asked my mom, do you want to put them in swimming? And we were kind of, you know, low income, didn't really know much at that time. My parents didn't, my parents were kind of scared of the idea of putting us in water too. So at, at 12 years old, I was uh, swimming with these five-year-olds and the instructors were 16. And I kind of just, the light bulb went off. I wanted to become a swim instructor for some reason. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, fast forward, I did the Ultra 1 to Ultra 9 and then, you know, the bronze program and uh, became a lifeguard swim instructor by 16. So I kind of tried to, I would practice on the weekends, tell my mom to take me to free swim so I could like, you know, learn the skills I learned that week. This was your end all be extra. all, right? Like this is like, this that, is like, yeah. Yeah, so eventually when I passed the lifeguard course, I came home, I was so happy, you know, and then uh, that summer interviewed for the city and uh, by 16, I was teaching um, at the city. And so 
that was a pretty you know quick learning curve mm-hmm. and obviously still i didn't feel like the most amazing swimmer right so uh we practice practice kind of made uh perfect right there in mm-hmm. a sense and then after working at the city for a few years uh i saw you know the pool manager so i tried to obviously apply to be a pool manager so two years into lifeguarding and instructing i became a pool manager and that was obviously a new role new position mm-hmm. kind of uh first first aspect of managing people and managing uh lifeguards right and i think I think whenever you get into a managerial position, uh, you know, you have a little bit of authority and you want to, you know, exercise that correctly. You have male, female, you have, you know, various age groups, right? So it's kind of the first uh, first role where I was kind of managing people, right? Did they pay you more when you became a pool manager? They did. They did. $2 more an hour. It was, <laughs> I think, $18 an, an hour so at you, that point. At this point, you're up. I'm, 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 I guess you could say well, on average, yeah, on average, uh, for a six, on, you on, 16 or at that time? Or no, no, no. Now I'm 19. Like 19. Now I'm 19. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so two, two and a half years, uh, after, you know, I applied for the role and then I got it. And mm-hmm. so I'm 19 first summer now as a pool manager. And remember like there's a good age gap too, between lifeguards and instructors, right? Yeah. Like 16 being like, you know, the new lifeguard. And then even some people lifeguard till they're 25, 26, right? Yeah, still yeah, a good yeah. university. Yeah. Uh, gig even when you're in university right yeah. working part-time or full-time or part-time i should say so anyways fast forward pool managing i i ended up seeing another pool manager was running a swim school and i was thinking uh you know okay that's that's an interesting business to be able to run on the side right and so what what actually happened was uh i'm in university at this point i think it's first year and i kind of had this idea where i I wanted to start my first business by 20 right and so uh, at that point i was kind of thinking like okay what skills do i have that i could use to start a business with what 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 was it that kind of pushed you to start a business was was there anything specific that uh you you know it was just an entrepreneurial instinct i i just felt you know um i've been an employee now for like four or five years and uh, I obviously saw people run run businesses. And the main reason why I actually really want to start a business was because after my first co-op term uh, with the CRA, so I, I, I went to business at Laurier. We'll get into that a little bit later. But uh, I did the co-op program. The first co-op was I was doing HST audits. So I was running um, audits on people's HST returns, right? Mm-hmm. So what they were claiming and what they were remitting. And I saw the different types of businesses that were out there. And so that kind of pushed me into, you know, starting a business. And then I thought, you know, what income skill do I have or a uh, high income skill? I guess, you know, now nowadays yeah. people call it. Yeah. At that time, it was a high income skill yeah, yeah. and it was in demand. You know, yeah, I, I yeah. just thought it was a foolproof, safe business mm-hmm. because everybody needed to learn how to swim. Right. Yeah. I thought it was kind of a basic skill. I never really had to sell it whenever people would call for swim lessons. You know, they really knew that, you know, they wanted to learn how to swim. And I would just have to sell them on our competitive advantage as to why we're the best swim school. Right. Yeah. And at that time, the main focus was let's do small group classes because I noticed that the city when I was working at the city, we would have nine to ten uh, kids even in, in certain classes. Yeah. And so a lot of the parents grew frustration because you have a half an hour class and you have 10 kids. Like how much attention can you really give to yeah. each kid? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just thought let's split that down to four, not split even less than. Uh, so, so, so that was your value prop. So your value prop was yeah, just small group smaller classes, group. Okay, okay, small okay, group okay. classes, more focus and attention on your child, right. Mm-hmm. More for them to learn. Mm-hmm. And then obviously there was private lessons too, right. One-on-one, which are the most expensive. That, that's lessons. where the money's at. That actually, no, because economies of scale, Oddly enough, um, if you're if you have one instructor in the water and you're paying them twenty bucks an hour, let's say, mm. and the lesson is forty bucks an hour, um, or forty bucks for the half hour and twenty bucks an hour, so let's associate the cost of the instructor at ten bucks for that one class, right? Mm. And the kid is paying forty dollars for that class, 
But if you're charging $15 for a group class and you have four kids, you're making $60 for that half hour versus $40 for that half hour, right? Mm-hmm. So private private is actually uh, doesn't doesn't make as much on the profit margin, but it's still hefty for yeah, paying yeah, for yeah, one yeah. kid for that yeah. much yeah, for, yeah, yeah, per yeah. lesson, right? Yeah. So anyways, uh, that was the reason why I thought, okay, swimming is good. And, you know, it wasn't like we had the money to buy a pool, but uh, I noticed that sw- the school board was renting out uh, there's there's school pools on the weekends, so I got permits for the pools, and I and I and I asked another uh, instructor at the, the city to join me because I was like, you know, I, I can kind of I know a little bit in, of the accounting aspect of things, and I kind of want another lifeguard to help me run the operational side of the business, right? So I had a partner for that business, and we ran it for a couple of years, and strictly on weekends, just one day a week. I had the website up, uh, you know, the full online form. You can sign up. I had a friend come in and take a video of uh, us doing lessons one day, and we. And people really trusted the video. Uh, they, they, they. You know, we gave our value proposition, and mm-hmm. um, they, they logged onto the website and rolled their child. And then I, I called them remotely, you know, in my home, uh, homeroom office, and uh, would organize the lessons for Sunday. And everyone would show up on Sunday, every half hour, right? The instructors switch, uh, switch kids and switch classes. And uh, that was going on through university too. I did that um, by driving back every single weekend and uh, I would do ride share every single time I'd come back. So that's how I was maintaining the car. Like, mm-hmm. you know, 15 bucks a seat. Everybody kind of didn't want to take the bus from Waterloo to Scarborough. Yeah. So 15 bucks a seat, you, you, you sell three seats, 45 bucks on the and way back. Yeah, I remember ride share. Your yeah. uh, I didn't have the hybrid at that time. Uh, so okay, okay. It, it was a master three, but so it's still, still fuel efficient. Yeah, 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 still yeah. fuel efficient. So what did, what did it cost you to start up that? That, the swim school, yeah, yeah, a thousand bucks. A thousand bucks. Yeah, I figured out how to incorporate it online myself. Mm, yeah. uh, I I inc- incorrectly federally incorporated it, but uh, <laughs> we'll now talk I know. about we'll talk about when yeah, to incorporate. We'll, federal, we'll talk about when to incorporate yeah. uh, later on. But yep. I incorporated it federally, which wasn't necessary because I was operating only in Ontario, yeah. let alone Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was that was funny when I realized that I had federally incorporated a couple years later. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, we incorporated it. We needed the money for. Uh, in order to pay the pool that was our biggest fixed cost you could yeah. say and then um we just tried to we we, we did flyers at first uh, around yeah, the neighborhoods that, closest to the school pools right that was actually that a question worked. i was gonna ask you i was like what was your what was your marketing how did you do how did you yeah it was pretty basic at first it was uh, flyers like door to door and then yeah. eventually the website came in and then we had google adwords google adwords oh, was powerful what year was this Damn, back yeah you did google eh? ads AdWords back then, yeah, no, yeah. This guy it was, was Google this Ads. Was, yeah, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't too complicated. You know, yeah. you wanted to. You wanted to hit your proposition, right? Mm-hmm. Small group classes, private classes, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that was you know the two lines in your Google Ad. And how did you how did you learn Google AdWords back then? I just kind of you know logged on, did a little bit of YouTubing, YouTubing and, yeah. and Googling, and uh, really wasn't that difficult. Yeah, and yeah. the cost per acquisition, you know, I think the cost per click is about a dollar, two dollars, let's say, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we would sell, I think, about nine lessons at that time for, I believe it was about 150 bucks, yeah. right? Yeah. So, you know, $2 or $3 uh, per per click. I would say our customer acquisition cost was maybe $10, yeah. like 10 or $12 maybe. Like every three to four clicks was a customer. Like it was mm. it was, it was, was really effective. The con- it was that one video on the website, eh? The, the video and then when, so then you, you got them to the website yeah. and then they watched the video. They got to know and understand the value proposition a little bit better and yeah. then they would sign up using the online form and then we would call them and schedule the class. That's actually the coolest thing about video too because I find that when, like no matter what business you do, if, if it's just a video on a website or just a video on like some sort of social media platform, like, 
the credibility that you kind of build from that video, it's like it's like absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I think, and and that's a huge reason now, and we'll get into it later with the real estate. Now I'm trying to do video, 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 right? Yeah. I think you're doing one right now. We're doing yeah. one right now. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. That's why we're on the no, podcast. It's right? impressive but to see that you had everything set up like that back then. And back then, yeah. Yeah, back yeah. Then don't don't get me wrong. It was yeah. far from perfect, yeah. but it was yeah. just a, a matter of, first, it was a matter of trying to cover the cost of the pool, and mm-hmm. we exceeded that pretty quickly. Like, you didn't, the margins were good. And yeah, that, yeah. that was another reason why starting that business was good, because not only was the demand good, the margins were good. Low uh, operating costs. Low operating costs, because we didn't own the pool. We rented mm-hmm. the pool, right? Mm-hmm. We'll get into that with Airbnb, why yeah. owning the property yeah. is sometimes not always better so when it came to taxes can you technically write off the the rental portion of the pool absolutely yeah you Fuck can yeah, you, you'd bro. write off uh you'd write off as many expenses as you'd as you'd as you incur to run the business right so yeah. any of the marketing google costs, adwords google adwords so yeah. any marketing costs any operating costs right including like you know any repairs and maintenance if you have for a typical business not for a swim school because yeah, yeah, we didn't yeah. own the pool but yeah. any repairs and maintenance mm-hmm. any marketing any meals and entertainment at 50 yeah. percent, yeah, right yeah. um and, and for those of that don't know like for those of you guys that are watching and you guys are like yo what this, this guy just said write off what exactly is a tax write-off can you can you explain sure. a tax write-off from a cpa's mouth sure i think most people at first when they first hear the word write-off they think i'm getting the entire money back mm-hmm. uh, that's that's what i found is the most common misunderstanding yeah. Yeah. they think they're getting the money back but really what it is is instead of paying the tax on that income you're deducting an expense and therefore you're not paying the tax uh for that amount because right? it so, reduces your like, yeah it reduces your tax liability so if you have five dollars in income and you have $2 in expenses, well, you're not going to pay tax on the $2 because you have an expense for that, right? So um, you're reducing your tax liability is in essence is what it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Right. Okay. So I guess, you know, fast forward to the swim school. So the swim school happens and, uh, and while I'm, while I'm running the swim school on the weekends, I'm, I'm at Laurier doing business. And the reason why I got into business in high school, initially I wanted to be a lawyer. I, I liked kind of, you know, advising people yeah, on yeah. their situations and what to do. And you still do that. I, I still do that. Well, I get into why I did the CPA in terms of that instead of doing the law route was because I think in, in uh, undergrad, I realized, you know what, like this is four years of undergrad, you know, $70,000 later, I'm going to basically go and spend another $120,000, right? About a hundred, hundred K I think for just the tuition if I'm in Toronto, right? Uh, plus, you know, other incidentals, let's round it up and call it about a hundred thousand dollars for law school, right? Mm-hmm. And then um, after I did, did my CRA co-op terms throughout uh, university, mm-hmm. I got offered a full-time position uh, as a tax auditor. So that was uh, starting about 60K, like out of school, right? So mm-hmm. I, I did the math and I was like, okay, 60K at four years, I'm going to forego to go to law school. So that's 240K there that I'm foregoing, right? Plus the 100K I'm paying to go to law school. Mm-hmm. And then there was a pre-construction uh, condo. We'll get into that later. The first condo that I bought that had gone up by about 150,000 at that point. So I would have had to forego that opportunity as well because I would have been in school, had no income, no way to mortgage that condo. Okay. Right? What, year, what year was this? So this is now 20... Uh, what, what year when I bought the condo? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's about third year now that I get the full-time uh, job offer for after school and I buy the condo uh, shortly after that because I know in two, three years when it's built, I'll have that income to, to mortgage For it with, mortgage, right? Yeah. So when I'm making that law school decision, I'm, I'm essentially weighing all these opportunity costs. So let's just say uh, $150,000 for the 
uh, condo, unrealized gain, but later became becomes realized. Mm-hmm. And uh, 150 for the condo, 240k for gold income, right? So that's about 390,000 opportunity cost plus the cost to go to law school, which is about a four a hundred thousand. So that brings you to 490. So I was basically saying to myself, I'm going to put myself half a million dollars behind if I go to become a lawyer. And did I think that was going to set me back more than I I could have? I I I did think that. I didn't really think about okay, how much how much do lawyers make and I only thing I thought of was okay, maybe a starting lawyer on average will make about 70,000 in their first year. And I was thinking, okay, the CRA position is paying me 60,000 with my current Not a crazy return on investment. <clears throat> excuse me not a current uh, not a crazy return on your investment exactly yes you can make partner and you make half a million one day later on in your career later on though. in your career yes. though right mm-hmm. so that's when i started to look at okay i know i like advising people i know mm-hmm. i want to be in a role where i have a framework and i look at a situation and i advise based on that so i started looking at at accounting and i realized that okay you know what i'm in 30 year it's not too late i can do my accounting electives my tax electives and and follow the cpa route and the reason why i did that was because one you can work while you're uh doing your articling uh not articling but work experience is what they call it so there's two and a half years 30 months of work experience as a C, as a to become a cpa but you're making money during that that time it's not a lot but you're making money and i realized that income was enough to keep the condo mm. and so i decided to go that route because all the exams associated with the cpa as well uh were covered by the firm right so that was an added bonus because mm. you're not out of pocket on educational costs right so they're covering your exams you're still making an income and uh i'm able to you know uh, keep the condo which mm-hmm. was the huge uh huge that, that was the main thing that's that, crazy bro i'm i'm I, that's it's what, crazy it's really cool how calculated you were like at that point in your life and yeah, at all yeah it things. was it was crazy even in grade nine when i wanted to be a doctor i was uh in grade eight i had all the courses from grade nine to 12 Jeez. laid out and things changed like i even even from going from wanting to be a doctor to going uh law was because i went to high school at mary ward it was self-directed I think that actually put you like way ahead. It was you know, it so was a really interesting school to go yeah, to. Yeah. So you know, so so those are the, the so those are the guys that don't uh really take in what self-directed means. You want to explain sure, what the self-directed sure. I'll, I'll concept is? I'll yeah, explain yeah, yeah. Mary Ward, which is actually a, an amazing school. Uh so it's a high school at Kennedy and McNichol. Um it's very different. So you show up what's normally called homeroom, but it's called TA in at Mary Ward. So uh TA because you're meeting with your teacher advisor right yeah, yeah. and your teacher advisor teaches many subjects and has their own classes but has about 20 kids in the morning which is called TA that they kind of look after and help keep on track mm. so every course at Mary Ward has 18 units and mm-hmm. the 17th or 18th unit is a culminating activity or final exam right so at that point um you have the full 17 units to get complete throughout the year and there's target deadlines which kind of are like you should have unit 1 done by this time and unit 2 done by this time but it's not a hard deadline right so you submit your units and you're given all eight courses at once so it's non-semestered in that sense mm. so you get eight courses at once 18 units right and you got to get all 18 units all eight courses done by june and if you don't there's summer school option and carry over option right for those units that you don't complete mm-hmm. But in essence, in the morning, you'll schedule your uh, agenda saying first period I'm going to show up in the math area and I'm going to work on unit 2. But your friend could still be on unit 1. And so you you go to that area, you work on your unit, 
And usually you'll schedule yourself to be in an area where let's just say you're working through the unit and you have a question on a particular topic. The teachers will have floor schedules. So the teachers will say, I'm on, I'm in the math area, first, third, and fifth period. So you could schedule to be in math first, third, or fifth period to write your name down on the consult list. And then once the teacher calls your name up, you go up, ask your question, and then continue in in your unit. And you're probably wondering how tests work. Every, you know, every, let's just say fourth unit, for example, in geography has a test. So you get unit four done. Once you get unit four done, you get a test code mm -hmm. in TA in the morning. And you have six days to go write that test in the test center. And the test has different versions, A, B, and C. So, you know, if, if you write the test before me, where our tests are not the same. Yeah. Right? So, so anyway, is this the only self-directed school? I think there's like three in Canada or oh, five wow. in Canada, something wow. like that. It's but very it's, different. I've never actually it's heard different, about this. It's different, but it's, it's, it's publicly funded uh, schools. So yeah. every, all the feeder schools, like the schools in the area, it's yeah. not like you need a... A special requirement to go to the school or anything it's it's like there, anybody can go anybody to the school okay. it's just a different uh, concept did you how did you go yeah. there because it's your home school or is it because i i went there choice? specifically for the self-directed self learning so Damn. think of it this way the way you kind of uh, operate in university yeah. is how this high school pretty yeah, much yeah, runs yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. so you're kind of getting hit with that concept in grade that independent nine style independent learning in yeah. grade nine mm -hmm. versus in first year university right That's so when really you get to smart. university um, it's very you're, more you're, you're way you're, more, prepared. more prepared yeah, yeah. yeah. so kind of like how they have lectures in university they had seminars in high school mm -hmm. so for every math unit there was a seminar and it was mandatory some seminars are optional so in science there were optional seminars where if they thought a topic was difficult to understand you could attend and sign up for the one hour seminar go and learn about it but it wasn't mandatory to complete the unit how do you think Mary Ward as a high school like how do you think that's kind of shaped you into the person you are right now and um what kind of comp what kind of competitive advantage do you think that you have now now that you've went to school at Mary Ward? I and, think I think I had yeah. the competitive advantage in university because I already knew how to manage you know the workload pretty well with minimal teacher guidance or assistance, right? And I think all the students who went to Mary Ward really yeah. learned that, right? Mm -hmm. And I think fast forward all the skills that you learned, which was like you know time management, discipline, right? Like focus and and all those other things. You know, you have to be self motivated and driving yourself, right? Which I think is huge for being a business owner, right? And you know, the units didn't get done themselves, and there was you didn't go to math class every day, and the teacher was kind of behind you, right? Yeah, you were yeah. just you had the units and you had to get them done, and and uh, it was pretty. You had to drive yourself to get that done. You right? had to be responsible from like a young age. You and had to and be I, responsible, yeah. And I also noticed that, like you said, you were a manager since you were 19 years old at 19 after at, at yeah. 19 yeah yeah so i guess like all of that kind of like just transitioned into you just being I, I guess like a more uh put together person at a younger age no yeah i think all of the skills that you learned at mary ward just you know kind of fast forwards adulting a little bit right and uh that that helped for sure i would say help compose and, and get you ready for like the next steps and then university you know prepares you for the next steps too right certain things and aspects of that okay so going back to the CPA. Mm -hmm. Sure. Okay. Yes. Uh, so then basically I determined at that point, you know, the opportunity cost didn't, didn't make sense to, to do law. Yeah. So I ended up uh, working at the CRA, learning a little bit more tax on top of my co-op terms. I did that full time for about a year. And then I thought it was time to learn a little bit more accounting and audit. So I jumped over to the public accounting firms at that point did a little bit of public accounting to finish off that 30 months. So basically that 30 months was broken up over uh, some uh, tax audit experience and then uh, accounting audit experience. And then in my 30th month of experience in the accounting firm, basically COVID hits. 
And so COVID hits and uh, they, they, they temporarily lay me off uh, at the accounting firm for about 30 days. And uh, mind you, while all of this, so at this point I've been working in accounting, uh, been doing the swim school on the weekends, and I use some of my vacation time to get my real estate license. Yeah. Because the pre-construction condo um, made me realize real estate was my was was gonna be one of my passions, and yeah. I thought you know having the license at that point is also something that I wanted to really be the end goal. At some point through the CPA, I realized okay, I actually wanted to be. A realtor and we'll get into that with the how the pre-construction condo kind of influenced me with that but what about that pre-construction condo that uh, sparked that realtor interest in you what about sure, what was sure. that thing? i guess i guess what ended up happening was when i closed the condo i realized uh wow this this has gone up by about one hundred fifty thousand dollars, right and that was a huge light bulb moment i realized i was a pretty novice investor so i don't want to i don't want to you know make pre-con investing sound really easy and simple yeah, yeah. back in the day uh, i, I want to point out a huge um difference between pre-con now and pre-con then pre-con then i would say if you saw a four-bedroom home on the street or a two-bedroom condo for example selling for four hundred thousand, the pre-con condo was probably selling for like 450 or 440 right it wasn't that much of a premium built in to get the new condo right um, for me, the reason why I kind of saw pre-con as the strategy, one was because I was kind of ignorant in the sense that I didn't know anything about the birth strategy. I didn't know anything about the buy and hold, right? I just knew about pre-con because my parents, the first house that they bought was a pre-con property, right? What is the birth strategy for the people in the back? Uh, birth strategy is, uh, you know, buy, buy, renovate, uh, rent, refinance and repeat, right? Uh, and what that strategy is, is you're essentially buying a distressed property. Usually you're renovating or rehabbing that property and bringing it up to a, a good standard where it's going to be appraised for a higher value. Forcing that appreciation. You're forcing that appreciation, mm -hmm. right? And that's where I don't want um, the pre-con. Pre-con re relies strictly on market appreciation. You don't have a lot of control over the appreciation. You're depending on the market a lot. Whereas the Burr strategy, um, you know, you can force the value of the property up and then at that point, you're going to refinance based on the new value, hopefully pull out all the capital that you invested into the property plus the renovations, yes. which is what people call a perfect burr. Mm -hmm. If you don't have any money in the... And then the you deal. also have the regular market appreciation that happens as well. That's just like exactly. a bonus on that's top. That's a yeah. bonus. Mm -hmm. That's a bonus. Or, or, or your savior if you're a dumbass. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. exactly. And you also make money on the buy, right? If, uh, if you buy a distressed property, right? Well, that, that's where the money's made, that's right? Even made, on a yeah. flip, the money's made on the buy. buy. Here, most people buy, say, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, say at that point you refinance and then you're going to rent it out at a higher market rent because the property's obviously brought up in, in terms of its value, right? So, somebody's going to want to live in a newer three-bedroom apartment than a, a dingy three-bedroom apartment, yeah. right? So, the rents come up and then hopefully you're buying a property in an area where the rents cover... The mortgage uh, much more than the mortgage and and, Have and a maybe bit of you cash, cash flow. flow maybe yeah. you cash flow right mm -hmm. if you cash flow then you know you're you're doing pretty well in terms of covering your monthly expenses mm -hmm. but again at the end of the day I think real estate and even for me it took a few years and after buying a, a few pre-cons to realize that the money in real estate is made in the equity yes. not in the cash flow right the cash mm -hmm. flow is kind of just a mm -hmm. reserve for the day-to-day -day expenses, mm -hmm. right, of the property, because it takes some time if you're buying an older property to stabilize the property, right? You're gonna have maybe a new roof, uh, you know, new 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 hallway uh, carpet, right? So you're gonna have you're gonna have maintenance that you're gonna have to do. Uh, 
when tenants complain and usually you want to keep your cash flow for that right mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. really the 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 wealth in real estate is generated by the equity over time right it's even even in like in all of like in every aspect of life it's 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 ownership that that generates the most amount of money right exactly exactly and uh on on the topic of renting let's yeah. uh, I'll, I'll share a story about yeah, sure. uh renting so most people think you know i'm gonna buy an investment property i'm gonna rent it to a tenant and everything's gonna go amazing right but it's it's just like any other business right you're gonna run into trials and tribulations and and problems right or else there's no profits uh, most people like to say right so um m- going back to how i kind of got the idea of getting into real estate uh, my parents had one rental property so that was the first ever home that that they purchased outside of you know getting us out of the the apartment right everybody comes to canada immigrant families the first house is usually an apartment yep. not in the greatest area right and so at that time also like I was a saying, multi-family investment <laughs> multi-family investment oh we weren't in a multi-family it was a condo building but oh, okay, okay, okay. as i was saying you know my parents were delivering the papers back then and madame Holmes always had the back page right of yeah. the toronto sun that was probably the most expensive ad and they were making pretty good money. I mean, if you know Manami Homes now, you know you know they have a lot of projects, a lot of land, a lot of they've done really well. So my dad saw Manami Homes on the back page of Toronto Sun, and that's that was in the Staines community. So what everybody refers to now, Staines, you know, which is yeah. Markham and Steeles and uh, Morningside and Staines area in between there, that whole neighborhood, that entire neighborhood was just dirt at one point right wow. yeah. this is back in 2000 right so in mm-hmm. 2001 so i remember still going into the madame office and my parents buying the first home right so mm-hmm. they booked it in 2001 2003 it was built right and we would drive into the area and there'd be like you know no real roads and you just see a stick in the ground to see like that's your lot right so back in the were day, your parents like um into like numerology su- and stuff and did they look at all these believe kind of it or not they were not really okay, that okay. that into that but mm-hmm. I, I do run into that with some real estate mm-hmm, clients where mm-hmm. my client will be like oh we can't have a a five in the house. Right? Yeah, 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 them, yeah. My parents well, are like I'll, that. I'll so. say to them, but I'll be like, what if it's under market value? <laughs> what do they say? Matter then? She's then, like, no, no, and I can't like, do it. Yeah, no, no, no. no. That, no but surprisingly, that particular client's parents uh, actually uh, were really happy with yeah. the unit. And okay. uh, and luckily, that number didn't show up in, in the unit that we bought. Yeah. Fast forward to 2003, we mm-hmm. move into the first property. And in nice. front of that property, there's land that behind it, there's a... Uh, there's a concrete fence and then there's a railway track. And I think Madame had some trouble with the city getting permission to build on that land because of the proximity to the railway. And so from 2003, we move in uh, around 2007, they start selling the homes in front. Right. And we kind of realized that, you know, this this uh, we're in a semi detached and only has one car car parking. We kind of wanted to get a bigger home. So my dad booked the next uh, property that we lived in across uh, the street from where we currently lived. Mm -hmm. So then 2009, when that came up and was built, um, we moved there and then my dad did something where I, this is where like the light bulb went off for me too about renting. He he decided to rent out that property. Mm -hmm. And that was my first exposure to kind of uh, realizing that you can rent out real estate, right? And uh, going back to from paper delivery to then owning a rental property and having income come through there, I realized that, hey, you don't really need to work that terribly hard to to make an income, right? It doesn't always have to be like that. And I realized that that property really was what kind of brought us into the middle class, right? Mm -hmm. And with that additional income. Mm -hmm. And when I had seen the appreciation from when we had bought the first property from 2001 and then we moved in 2003 to when I saw what the properties across the street were selling for in 2007, 
I realized, okay, look, we've made this much in equity off the first property. And that's how my dad was kind of able to leverage that property and buy the second property that we moved into, right? And so that's kind of what gave me the idea that, hey, I, I really like real estate and I kind of wanted to get into it. And then uh, fast forward to the third time my dad ended up turning over tenants. We had a, we had a, a really smart um really smart professional tenant, I think is uh, the, the word for what these tenants do. And mind you, I want to preface this by saying like 99% of tenants, I, I want to say are pretty good tenants, right? Mm -hmm. Like they pay their rent on yeah. time. They're not they trying take to cause care of the problems. property, right? Yeah. They, don't, they don't want to cause any problems. They just mm -hmm. want a nice house. They want to live with their family, right? Mm -hmm. And um, uh, you, you, you will get the bad apple every now and then, right? And this is why you want to know what to look out for mm -hmm. when you're renting your property. And we'll get into that and how to prevent some scenarios like that. But mm -hmm this particular situation this lady uh owned a condo we found this out afterwards so anyways she 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 starts renting the property and eventually she stops paying rent and so she stops paying rent for about three months and uh we have to go through the landlord and tenant board and for those who don't know how rentals and disputes are handled it's handled through a tribunal called the landlord and tenant board and so they oversee any disputes between landlords and tenants across ontario and so whenever you have an issue, whether that's, you know, one tenant in the upstairs unit is disturbing the tenant in the downstairs unit. And after a certain amount of notices, you know, you take them to the landlord tenant board to evict them on that basis. Or if there's non-payment of rent, you can evict them based on the on the fact that they're not paying rent. So all that has to go to the landlord tenant how, board. How many, uh, how many months of non-payment uh, does a... Uh, does, does a landlord have to kind of justify with the landlord and tenant board to provide like an N11 or whatever? Like, uh, So I'll, I'll go through the form. So the first step is you have to provide an N4, mm -hmm. which basically is a notice to the tenant that says, hey, you failed to pay, make your payment of rent. And you can issue that. You can't issue that on the first of the month because it, the first has to pass. So let's just say it's June 1st. They owe 2500 in rent. They haven't paid the 2500 in rent as of midnight uh, on the first, right? <clears throat> On the second day of the month, you can serve an N4, which says, hey, you're behind on rent by 2,500. Um, <clears throat> you have two weeks, so you'll set a date in the N4, which is two weeks from the date you serve the notice. Uh, and if they don't pay the rent by then on the notice, it says your lease will be terminated, right? And so that two weeks has to pass in order for you to take the next step, which is filing an L1, which is an application to an evict a tenant based on non-payment of rent. Right now, if the tenant pays the rent in the in the two week period, the N four gets gets scratched and there's no issue, right? Because they paid their rent. If the two weeks passes, you file the L one, and then the <clears throat> it's about one hundred eighty six dollars if you file it online. Now the landlord tenant board's gotten a lot better uh, online because of COVID and whatnot. A lot of the hearings through COVID actually happened on Zoom, and I I, I took part in in one of those as well for on behalf of my dad. We'll get into that story as well. But anyways, um, you file the L1 and eventually you'll get a hearing date. And once you get a hearing date, uh, at this point, you'll get another form closer to the hearing date to fill out and update the board as to how many months of rent now does the tenant owe you, right? Now, mind you, if the tenant comes up to speed on the rent before the hearing date, well, then the L1 is, is scrapped and there's no there's no hearing, right? Because they're up to date. They, but yeah. mind you, that that doesn't always happen. Most mm -hmm. likely, if they haven't paid rent um, uh, for two, three months, it's going to mostly continue yeah, on. They're, they're one of those bad apples yeah, at that exactly. point. Yeah, exactly. And so the, the, the average time to get a hearing pre-COVID was about three months, I would say. 
post COVID, even now we're seeing uh, hearings that are take. I know some people who have had tenants who haven't paid for a year. Oh my goodness! And haven't gotten a hearing, right? So back then, and mind you, during this period while you're waiting for the hearing. You're still paying the mortgage on that house that your professional exactly. tenant is not paying. Exactly, exactly. You have to cover all the operating expenses of the rental. It's illegal mm-hmm. to turn off the electricity, to, to turn off the heat, right? Those are mandatory things that you need to upkeep as a landlord. So you want to mm-hmm. always make sure too that just because your tenant stopped paying rent, you don't meet your obligations as a landlord. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. when the hearing comes, you want to show the landlord and tenant board that, hey, as a landlord, I've kept all my obligations and the tenant hasn't, right? And that's how you kind of um, uh, win the case, right? And then eventually get your tenant evicted. So the hearing date comes, the tenant shows up. If the tenant doesn't show up, it's a default judgment, right? You get the judgment automatically. If the tenant does show up, they say their side of the story. And and, and in genuine cases, right? Like if your tenant has missed a, a month, but they've paid half a month, like maybe they lost their job. Maybe they, you know, they're, they're in the process if of getting a new job. Case. If and And if they're trying, you want to do your best to resolve it with them because sometimes you have a good tenant who's been paying for a year and then they stop paying all of a sudden. That's usually not a bad Apple tenant. That's a, that's usually a tenant who's just come through a difficult circumstance, right? So if, if they actually are going through difficult circumstances, they can uh, kind of appeal to the, to the landlord and tenant board. I don't want to say appeal in, in this, in the, in the word of like, you know, you have a judgment and then you appeal that judgment, but they just kind of, um, advocate for themselves saying that you know this is my current situation right but in in cases where you haven't received rent for three or four months and they haven't paid a cent in rent you know this is a tenant that doesn't want to pay rent right so you get your judgment and it doesn't stop there so let's just say everything goes well they haven't paid their rent the landlord and tenant board sees that they give you a judgment saying okay um i'm just gonna say john you have to be evicted by you have to leave the unit by Let's just say it was June 1st, they didn't pay their rent, you got the hearing in August, and the judgment says you have to leave by September, right? This is pre-COVID timeline. If it's now, it'd probably be a year later. Hmm. Uh, So August, they have to move out. If they don't move out voluntarily, then you have to take your landlord and tenant board judgment and go to the sheriff's office. And and I would say you want to do this as soon as you get your judgment because there's also a time period at the sheriff's office, right? So you go to the sheriff's office, and the sheriff will then... Um, uh, show up on a day where uh, they physically evict the tenant and uh, have them physically removed out of the property wow. if it comes to that, okay. right? Okay. So that's kind of um, the process. So it's an N4 to, to the tenant to say, hey, you failed to pay your rent. An mm-hmm. L1 at the landlord and tenant board to file application to evict. Then a judgment comes down. And then to enforce the judgment um, to physically evict them, you need the sheriff. Now, what happens with the rent that... Uh, is still owed to you, right? Um, there's that's where you take the landlord and tenant judgment, and that judgment is actually recognized in um, small claims court. By the way, I, I want to just put a quick disclaimer: this yep. isn't legal advice, right? It's just for informational purposes. But for sure, yeah. Um, <clears throat> the small claims court will recognize that judgment. So you go directly to small claims court. You show them the judgment. They'll give you a judgment at the small claims court level, which then allows you to enforce the judgment, right? Enforcing it simply means how do you get your, how do you actually get the the money back, right? How do you actually get the payment for those missed payments? Yeah. How do you get those missed payments? So you could essentially sue them, right? So that's, that's just like, well, there's no suing because the landlord and tenant board has already determined that that tenant owes you the rent. So that judgment says that they basically owe you the money. And the small claims court then gives you a judgment at that level that says, hey, yeah, they still owe you money, 
right? And then the two methods of enforcement are either through a lien or through garnishment, right? So in order to do a garnishment, which is, you know, you're garnishing wages. Uh, so the employer, um, by the order of the court, has to deduct a certain amount of wages and it has to be reasonable, right? Like they can't, they can't, they can't deduct all their, yeah. they, can't, they can't go hungry and they have to yeah, live yeah. somewhere, right? Yeah. While they're paying this debt back to you. But mind you, you have to know the employer, you have to know where they work mm. in order for that to work. A second way. That's why it's good to get all that get information all that when before. You start, yeah. Yeah. But they you, could simply uh, change jobs on of you. Course, and then, of course. And then or you, they could provide false documents. That's and true then, too. That but, too. But even then, if you don't do your yeah, yeah, due diligence, your, yeah, then exactly. you know we'll get into doing due diligence mm-hmm. too. But essentially, at that point, um, you can either garnish, right, which we talked about. And then the other ways uh, of enforcement is through a lien, mm-hmm. right? And a lien is is uh, on their name and it applies to any property that they own, right? So essentially, they can't sell that property unless the lien, uh, unless the lien is or the the judgment is paid out, right? So and it's actually called a writ, a writ of seizure, and, and so the writ has to be paid out before they can sell the property. So now, mind you, most tenants don't own their own property, yeah. so doing a, a a lien is is usually not your usual it's, method of enforcement. Yeah. It's usually garnishment of wages, mm. but. In this particular case, my dad actually had a tenant who owned a condo and she was renting this condo out. And I'm assuming she was kind of employing the strategy where she was renting out the condo because it was too small for her. And she was renting a four bedroom house from us because she had a a more extended family, family, a bigger family, right? So anyway, she stops paying rent for three months. And then my dad follows the procedure, serves the N4, does the L1. She doesn't show up to the landlord and tenant board. So he gets the judgment takes the judgment to small claims court and then <clears throat> we get the judgment there we try to enforce it um so she switches jobs so we we were not able to figure out where she works anymore and um at that point uh we do find out that she owns this condo because it's the address on her license right because you collect id when you lease a property to a tenant right you want to collect id you collect uh employment information pay stubs <clears throat> whenever you're doing your due diligence so we find that out and then we um, put a lien uh, against her name and on the condo, right? Now, mind you, the um, the writ has to be renewed every six years, right? So we've, we basically put the writ and remember, you, you, you essentially have to, you could force a sale, but um, that's another procedure you have to go through the courts, right? So we kind of just, you know, applied the writ. My dad didn't even probably know about that at the time, I think. So... We put the writ and five years passes by. And at this point, I'm a realtor. So I'm just kind of thinking back to this case that, mind you, happened in 2013. So now it's probably 2021. Okay, so um, uh, the the case dragged on and then there's a written place. So fifth year of the writ, we ended up finding out. So I'm, I'm, I'm now, now I have access to Geo Warehouse, which is essentially a system that allows you to see who owns what property and, and whatnot as a realtor. So... I search up the address of the property on MLS and I realize that it's sold. And I'm thinking, and I look at the closing date and I'm like, how did this property close uh, without my dad seeing his money, right? So I started doing a little bit of digging. I started looking at the co-op office on, you know, who co-opted on the deal, who sold the property. And I start digging down and figure out who the lawyers were on the deal. And so... Once I figure out who the lawyer was for the, the sell side, which is representing her, 
I called up the lawyer and I say, well, why, why didn't, uh, why wasn't the writ paid out? And he said, well, the property was sold subject to the writ. And I was like, what do you mean the property was sold subject to the writ, right? He said the property was sold subject to the writ. So he's pretty tight-lipped about it. And then I obviously got my lawyer involved and I was like, what's going on here? Is this, is this allowed? And he said, yeah, they actually registered it. So the buyer's side lawyer actually agreed and I have no idea why they would agree to this, right? Um, agreed to take on the writ. And I think the agreement was uh, that the closing date was August and the writ was going to expire in October. So I think what they were, we, I ended up figuring out what they were trying to do. The lawyer was trying to figure out whether, the, uh, whether we would renew the writ. And if we didn't renew the writ, then they could just uh, uh, the grid would away. fall off, yeah, and and that's it, right? So I think the agreement was we'll hold back the money in trust if the writ doesn't get paid out, or if the the writ doesn't renew, then perfect. Well, my client will get her money back. If the writ does get renewed, we'll have the money in trust ready to be paid out, and we'll we'll solve it. So how often are you supposed to renew it? Every six years. Every six years, okay. Every six years, it expires, right? So you, you got to do it before the six, the anniversary of six years, right? Okay. Mm. So I call the lawyer and I tell him, listen, we're going to renew the writ. Like, we're going to renew the writ. You're going to pay out my dad. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, this is the, this is, you're, you're basically playing games at this point, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So October comes around, we renew the writ. Uh, we, you could renew it way ahead of time too, yeah. but we renewed it closer to the date. Um, we renew the writ and then in February, I get a call from the from the the the, the, the tenant's uh, lawyer who represented her in the sale saying hey we're ready to pay your dad out so we calculated the interest down to the last uh, day that he went to pick up the check and so a debt from 2013 that I think was about three thousand something dollars uh, with all that annual interest added up to I think it was a close to five grand 4900 right okay so, so how, how is the interest uh, calculated? Uh, the interest is calculated. So when you get the landlord and tenant board judgment, yeah, there's a formula where there's uh, you know the amount of rent that you're owed plus the cost of filing the L one, yeah, plus uh, uh, plus the interest rate on the judgment. Mm-hmm. Okay, right? so the board already predetermined it's, all it's, this stuff. It's predetermined. Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay. And I think it's a legislated amount of interest. Don't yeah. quote me on that, but yeah. I think it changes based on the interest rate environment, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. So essentially, he gets the money paid out, and uh, that was that was a long. Uh, lo- so you could see mm-hmm. 2013 to 2022 mm-hmm. yeah. is when he finally saw the money, and that was only because mm-hmm. uh, the tenant owned a property. Oh, okay. Right, right. and we've, we 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 had a rent on the property. Most times, you're gonna you're gonna most likely write that write that off as a as a, as a bad debt. Mm-hmm. Bad debt, yeah. Bad debt. So for tax purposes, if your tenant doesn't pay you rent, yeah. Um, you can write that off as an expense called bad debt, right? It's kind of like a loss. It's a loss. Yeah. Exactly. On, the, on the bright side, you still made equity in the house. Exactly. Yeah, the house on the bright side, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully. If again, market appreciation, of right? Course, Which for course. the last few years has been, a, been a, a, a outstanding. Quite phenomenal, right? yeah. <laughs> quite phenomenal, yeah. One thing I want to ask you, um, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people out there they don't get into real estate uh, in terms of the investing side and renting it out to people for this very reason, right? Hundred percent. So, like, what would you have to say to these kind of people that might be worried? Like, you know, what I really don't want to do that just in case these kind of things happen. Sure. Uh, I think I think number one, you have to understand that real estate. And especially renting is just like any other business, right? You're going to run into problems. Most people like to call rent passive income, right? It's not really truly passive until you're not involved in it. 
And so for people who don't want to be involved in the day-to-day activities of, you know, renting property, hire a property manager, hire a property manager. You, you beat me to it. So, you know, people who own like 20, 30, 100 units, obviously they're not managing every single thing by themselves. They have Mm -hmm. a property manager and you want to have a good property. Some people are crazy. Some people enjoy that shit. Some people are like, yeah, 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 yeah. If you own one or two units, you know, it's not a big deal. And if they're in close proximity, but you know, if they're far away and you don't want to deal with the due diligence, you know, you get a higher experienced property manager and, Hopefully, more more times than not, you'll get good tenants, right? Key is if you're yeah. if you're relying on it yeah. as passive income, yeah. you want to account for the property manager cost and and all that other stuff, and make sure you're cash flowing. I what guess. what is the standard uh, percentage a property manager takes? Anywhere between five five percent, I think, is the standard. Uh, up to ten percent, I think I've even heard. But I think five it's, to it's 10%. ten to twelve percent uh, if it's like more hands on landlord, sure, like, like sure. Airbnb and stuff, short term. I think Airbnb stuff, yeah. actually is a share of uh, share of the profits. Uh, Share of the rents, I think it's like 20% uh, sh- uh, revenue share. I guess it just depends on the company. It depends on the property too, right? manager. Yeah. The contract. And and the contract. Yeah. And, you know, mm-hmm. it can be done many ways. So yes. Airbnb is pretty flexible. But anyways, that's that's really, uh, you know, what if you want to don't want to be dealt with it, hire a property manager. But just know that even if your property manager does all the due diligence and somebody slips through the cracks and you don't get rent for like three months then or six months, you're, you should have the wherewithal emotionally to deal with that and second of all financially be ready for that right and have cash reserves to be able to carry the property let's just say if a tenant i i would say today if you're gonna buy an investment property you should have at least one years of operating expenses always in the cash reserve right just to be able to carry the property in the event the tenant stops paying because if the tenant stops paying and you can't pay that property that means you're over leveraged, mm. right? And you never want to be in that. It's a very position. good tip for sure. Great and, tip. Uh, yeah. Now you can see, like, look at what's happening to the market, right? Yeah. And uh, mm. things shift, right? It's not always a rosy market. I know it has been for the last <laughs> three to four years, yes. but there are changes, right? 2017, we saw it when the foreign buyers tax came in. There was a little lull in the market, and then things picked back up. Right now, we're seeing it with rising interest rates, right? So, um, in every market, in every business, right? There's external uh, factors and. Uh, industry you know um impact and uh variables that you can't control that you have to monitor so that was a great uh story you gave us on landlord tenant and uh you know what it takes to essentially own a rental property yeah but uh going through the trials and tribulations because it's, it's not always rosy like most mm-hmm, people think like mm-hmm. owning 100 properties and all your tenants are paying all the yeah, time right yeah so yeah we went into that issue but yeah. So, uh, yeah. So let's go back to the CPA and how you got into real estate. Sure. So like I said, first property kind of spun the idea of, you know, I, I, I really do think I want to do this full time. And like I said, I'm still young at this point. I went kind of from being a doctor to being a lawyer and then uh, figuring out that CPA was kind of the best way to have that advisor role. But at the same time, not have to lose out on the opportunity cost. So now I own the condo at this point. And uh, I've done the license, the real estate license, but I'm not doing it full time because I, I really think real estate is a career where you need to be into it full time um, in order to really be a good realtor and serve your clients at, at full service, right? Because you need to be able to answer the phone. You can't do a nine to five and and, and do showings all the time yeah. after five o'clock, right? Even yeah. though that's when they usually are. And so I really didn't get into real estate even though I had the license until I finish my CPA. So the goal at that time was let's get the CPA done. Let's get the work experience done. And I felt like I was so far in, uh, I wanted to get it complete and, you know, parental expectations too, even though I want to say my parents never, ever like, you know, forced a specific career on me or they were really understanding and forgiving in terms of like how many times I kind of switched and wanted to do different things. So 
Anyways, I did the CPA, and then the 30th month, as I was saying, uh, I basically got uh, laid off for 30 days uh, for COVID because every business at that time, I think, was laying off employees or just trying to figure out how how's this thing going to spin out yeah, yeah. and uh, taking the safer bet by laying off some employees. So I was one of those employees. And at the same time, COVID, because of the nature of, uh, of what it was, mm-hmm. uh, the schools stopped uh, permitting out their pools because they wanted to limit the limit the COVID to maybe just the classrooms and they didn't want people outside using the pools on the weekend. Oh, you still have the pool in. business at this I'm, st- yeah. I'm still doing this on the side on yeah. the weekends, yeah. right? This guy's a savage. So, yeah. so, so I'm doing the, I'm doing the swim school on the weekend, just on Sundays yeah, yeah. and Monday to Friday working as an accountant, right? And it was yeah. pretty manageable business. Yeah. Like honestly, both of those was kind of like having a weekend job and a, and a regular full-time job. Cause I'd imagine there's no like follow-ups or like uh weekly. There still was, there still oh, was in, calls in, with the, with the swimming, but I would set the hours from like five to 9 PM. So people would call and inquire after they'd finish work anyway. And so I'd have the cell phone on for that. And I would answer questions after work during the evenings and weekends. And people would show up on Sunday for their actual lessons. Mm. Have you, uh, were you like cross marketing and like kind of converting your, uh, uh, I did, I did have a, uh, I had one, one or two clients like that because, uh, I'll kind of get into that in a second. So basically the swim school gets shut down as well at this point. Right. So, Mm. My two main sources of income get shut down. Mm-hmm. And for the longest time, like like I said, I wanted to get the CPA done before I could get into real estate. And um, there was a point where I was like, should I just stop this and just jump into real estate full time? But, you know, I said, let's finish it. And coincidentally, that 30th month was when I got laid off. So I got laid off. And in that month, I decided that uh, I was going to do real estate full time. So essentially, I, I, I said, you know, I don't want to ever rely on on, on an employer ever again after going through this because I had a mortgage, uh, I had two mortgages and I was, I was pretty, and one of them, you know, mostly was covered by a, a paying tenant, luckily. But uh, uh, at that point, it was a stressful situation. So I kind of was forced into real estate. I kind of just jumped into it. There was a six month deferral on mortgages at that time when COVID hit, right? The big banks were, were yeah, giving yeah. that out as a, as a, as a COVID relief because yeah. a lot of people Apparently got Apparently that shit like just completely fucks up your credit. Uh, no, it didn't actually. Nope. Not at all. No, mm. it, but, uh, it, but it looks bad on your file if you no, were to do that. No, no, no. If you took oh. it, if you took it, um, which a lot of people took it, all really? that happened was the interest that, that, uh, so at first the banks were doing interest on that interest for that six month period. And then they refunded everybody the interest on interest, but the additional interest you accrued on the balance was accruing at a higher principal, right? Because you were not making principal payments for six months. So the interest accrued onto the balance of your mortgage, right? So you had a little bit of a bigger balance, but essentially the goal was to give people a relief in yes. terms of their cash flow at that time. Which I'm right? sure helped a lot. 100% sure. helped me, right? Mm-hmm. Because I basically transitioned into real estate full time mm-hmm. and, and things were really good. I ended up uh, you know, really leveraging my sphere of influence. And luckily during COVID, Real estate picked up at three, the first three to four months were a little bit shaky. People didn't know what was going to happen. People thought it was the COVID was going to trigger a recession. And anyways, later on, that didn't happen. The market went up as we all knew and went up uh, insanely over the, the next two years from that point. And uh, I was lucky enough to transition at that, at that good time. And so I started selling pre-con. I started selling uh, um, resale properties, obviously, right? And I kind of want to preface again, like going back to um, pre-con, I, I don't know if I, if I finished the point on mm-hmm. 
at that time when I bought my first condo, right? Like I said, a two bedroom condo resale might have sold for 400 and a pre-con was probably like 425, 430, 440 maybe. And you kind of wanted to buy a new property because if it was your principal residence, you kind of wanted something new versus something old. You liked the fact that you didn't have to put um, the entire uh, down payment up front and you can make payments towards it. The and payments then close are spread it. out amongst the longer term and, and stuff And then, too. you know, yeah. closing was two years from now and so on and so forth. So the biggest advantage there was that, you know, you're gaining some equity while the properties was being built uh, because the market was appreciating assumably, right? That's the biggest thing about pre-con. But nowadays, pre-con is pricing in a lot of the future market appreciation. Mm-hmm. And that's why the pre-con strategy... I don't really recommend it for most of my investor clients. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think it's the best investment. I think there's better ways to uh, better ways with real estate. Like we were talking about the Burr strategy yeah. mm-hmm. um, to really have more control over the investment. Whereas, like with precon, like you need to scout the builder. You need to make sure that uh, you know the builder has a solid track record with building and finishing developments. That you know, uh, you've heard the stories where people bought condos for three hundred, they went to six hundred, and the whole project was canceled. Right, so. Mm-hmm. Precon is a risky investment because not only, um, especially when nowadays, and this is why I'm saying I don't think it's the best strategy these days, is because a lot of the future market appreciation is priced in today. So you're paying tomorrow's price <clears throat> today, and you don't even know if tomorrow's price is going to be that price. Yes, I see. Right? Okay. Whereas when I was buying precon back in the day, I was like, okay, you know what? I'm paying a slight premium, I'm not paying like a $100,000 premium. Uh, up front, right? Like, so that's why I was able to make quite a lot of equity gains with pre-con back then because builders were not that aggressive with the pricing. Now, after the market went up like yeah. three, like like two, three fold in such a small period of time, builders started to get, in my opinion, a little bit greedy and pricing in some of the future appreciation because they saw all these buyers making a lot of money on their product mm-hmm. and they're like, we want a piece of that too. I don't think it's all, I don't think it's all uh, greed. I think like a lot of it has to do with like just like the rising cost of like just labor and like uh, material material as well. Yeah. yeah. So they, I think they're just kind of pricing in the future just value as well. Their own backs yeah. as well. Just right? in case like the prices do go up, they they kind of have like a backward. But obviously, there's going to be greed in there as well. Like, I would gonna, say yeah. I would say I would say to that point, I would say recently yes because inflation has gone up a it's lot. Ridiculous right now. Yeah. Right. But. Before inflation started to rise that fast and the market was was um, was doing really well, <clears throat> the pricing where they were pricing in more than what they were pricing in previously was was getting there. Like you can't tell me that all this future market appreciation priced in is allocated to rising costs. No, 100%, absolutely 100%, 100%, it is. Hundred percent. Absolutely yeah. it is. But uh, uh, I think there's a portion in there where they start to realize we want to make a piece of the pie too. Yes. If the market continues to race on the way it is. Mm. And that's when you started to see the $0 assignment fees become $10,000 assignment fees. I've even seen some APSs where the builder is now saying 10% of the assignment profit. What's up? What's 10% APS? 10% of the assignment fee. APS is agreement of purchase and sale, right? Okay. So your, your, your contract uh, when you buy a pre-construction property, yeah. right? Anyways, scrolling back to full-time real estate, right? So mm. then uh, I started selling properties resale and then I was managing some of the properties that I had bought pre-construction uh, they started to keep started to close, and as they started to close, um, I started to make the decision. Like, obviously, you have to rent a lot of your pre-constructions if you wanna uh, be entitled to the HST rebate. So, we can talk about that, like HST on pre-construction. So, HST, uh, which is harmonized sales tax, right in Ontario, that's thirteen percent. 
So I believe it's 8% at the provincial level and 5% at the federal level that harmonized or together is 13%. When it comes to resale real estate, uh, re- resale residential, I should say, any res- resale residential real estate, HST is included in the price, right? You don't, you don't really deal with it, so, so to speak. But on pre-construction properties, HST uh, is a huge uh, factor that you have to take into consideration. Now, when you move into the property that you're buying that's a pre-con, you get that credit on closing. So the CRA basically says the builder has a responsibility to find out what the intention of the use of that property is going to be, whether it's going to be occupied by the uh, purchaser or whether it's going to be a rental property um, uh, is is determined at, at, at closer to closing, right? So if you're going to move into the property, you can get the credit on closing. And so you don't pay any HST. Um, or if you say to the builder, hey, I'm going to rent the property, the builder's going to say, okay, no problem. You're going to have to actually, so the builder then has a responsibility to collect the HST upfront from the purchaser. So if Heaven's buying the property from, from me and I'm the builder and Heaven says, hey, I'm actually not going to move into that property. I'm going to live where I'm living and I'm going to rent that property out. Technically, he has to pay all the HST up front to the builder and that'll be reflected on the statement of adjustments and what you pay to the lawyer on closing. So you'll pay the HST to, the, to your lawyer. The lawyer will remit it to the builder's lawyer. The builder will remit it to the CRA and then the CRA will have it on, on, uh, on account that you've paid for the HST. After you can produce a long-term lease. Now, long-term is defined by a 12-month lease. If you can produce a 12-month lease and show it to the CRA, um, you have to apply for the rebate after the fact. And you apply to the CRA and you say, hey, I've had a tenant in there for 12 months, but the maximum rebate that you can get is, I believe it's $24,000 provincially and $6,000 federally. So $30,000 is your total rebate you can get back. So if you pay anything above and over that, that's out of your pocket. But you're eligible for up to 30,000 uh, of that back if you uh, uh, file appropriately and you follow all the rules, right? And again, not accounting your tax advice, everyone's situation is different, right? So see your professional and discuss your personal situation because it might be different than the rest, but just general information, Yeah. HST is a, is a implication on pre-construction. Now getting into, um, getting into where now, let's just say you apply for the rebate, you get it back. If you're doing a long-term rental, what if I buy my pre-construction and I start doing Airbnb with it right away? Mm-hmm. Well, now I'm no longer principally residing in the property. I'm no longer hosting a long-term rental. I'm actually doing a short-term rental yes. now. Mm-hmm. So technically, if you're running a short-term rental, you pay the HST up front and you don't get any of it back. So speaking of HST, what are the uh, income tax uh, implications of rentals? Sure. So just to, just to be, let me, let me um, separate the three types of <clears throat> main, main, main taxes. There's so many different types of taxes, right? But um, HST is value-added tax. So that's actually tax that you pay on top of the value that you're buying, right? So if you go to a dollar store, you buy something for a dollar, it's $1.13, 13 cents is value added tax. Mm. The income tax portion, Dollarama has to report the $1 that they earned, less the cost of what they just sold you. The profit gets taxed. That's called income tax. Getting taxed on your profits, right? So for rentals, long-term rentals in particular, um, those are taxed passively, 
uh, in a corporation, right? They're taxed at the in investment income rate in a corporation, which is the highest tax rate in, in a corporation. We'll get into a corporation and why. But personally, let's just say you hold your rental property. Your obligation is one, to report the rental income. And two, you can report the expenses against the rental income, right? So you report, okay, this is how much revenue I made from my rental. So 2000 a month for 12 months, 24000 this year. And then you can deduct your mortgage interest, the mortgage interest, not the entire mortgage, right? So anything principal that you pay down is not deductible. The interest component is deductible. The other things you can deduct include like any repairs or maintenance you did on the property. Tenant called you, tap broke, you put in a new tap, right? Um, small, small things like that. And then, so the main ones are mortgage interest, property tax, property management, right? Um, uh, what's the big one? Home insurance, right? So those are your main ones, right? If if the rental is all inclusive, you can deduct utilities. If they're if the rent is rent plus utilities, then you don't can't deduct that because the tenant's paying for that. But in essence, um, those are that's the process, right? You report your revenue, you deduct your expenses, and any profit left over, you're gonna pay tax on. Now you probably hear a lot of people saying, "Wow, real estate is the best for tax," right? Now you can pay zero in taxes. Now, the way you get to zero in taxes after your rent, less your mortgage interest, insurance, property taxes, what have you, if you have some profit left over, that's where depreciation kicks in. Mm -hmm. So yes, yes, yes. depreciation for tax purposes is known as CCA, it's capital cost allowance. So what that is, is the CRA allows for deduction against, uh, against the rental income. You can't create a loss. You can deduct against whatever income is left over uh, about 4% of the building on a declining balance basis. So what that means is, let's just say you own a property that's a million dollars. A certain portion of that, the, well, the property goes up every year. So you're wondering why, what are you depreciating? Yes. Well, the land aspect of the property is the, is the portion of the property that never depreciates. And so you cannot take... CCA or depreciation on land. So the CRA will ask you to allocate a cost to the land of the total purchase price of the property. So let's just assume for argument's sake, 300,000 is the land value. Of that million. Of that million. Mm -hmm. So then you have 700,000, that's the, uh, the, the cost of the, of that's the cost of the building. Yeah. And then you take 700,000 and you get 4% of that. In the first year, you, there's a half year rule. So you get half of the 4% in the first year. And then starting the second year, you get 4% declining balance basis. So off the balance, it's 4% off the balance every single year as it continues to decline, mm. right? Now you might, 4% might be, let's say $2,000, just for argument's sake, and uh, the profit you have is 1,000. You don't take, you can't take the full 2,000 and be in a $1,000 loss, right? You can only take 1,000 of that CCA and, clear and, and write it off against the $1,000 in income you have, and then you get to zero in tax. But what is the long-term implication of taking that CCA deduction? Mm -hmm. Well, if you own the property for a long time, well, you can continue to, de to deduct CCA and that'll come off the cost of the building. But the day you sell that building, right? All the deductions that you took for CCA get recaptured, right? So recaptured, so it's called recapture, but you basically recapture all the deductions that you took for CCA purposes, and that gets added back, right? So you're gonna end up paying tax on all of the deductions you took, 
if it's a rental property, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But if you hold that property yeah. and you think if it's going to be, holding and holding. if you're just holding and holding, then you're going to have that deduction probably every year until that 700,000 gets close to zero. But mind you, if you in the fifth year or 10th year of owning that rental property, yeah, yeah. Do sixty thousand in renovations? Well, you can't expense those renovations. You actually have to capitalize them. Yeah. So that sixty thousand gets added to the cost of the building, and then you can amort, you can depreciate that. You, 60, have, you have more room to start. You have more room to start depreciating mm. on that basis. So right? what you're saying is the tax system, the tax system essentially incentivizes buy and hold. Does it not? Or no? Absolutely, absolutely, it does, and. Um, uh, you see that even you'll, you'll notice tax is very logical and there's policy behind the tax, right? Yeah. Like you have to understand why is the HST rebate given? Why is there a rebate when you offer a 12 month lease yes. to a tenant? Well, because the government wants to increase housing supply. And so they want to incentivize the people who are buying pre-construction that, Hey, if you rent this out on a long-term basis, you you'll be able to be eligible for the rebate. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's yeah. not what really taxes is. It's kind of like a it's like a rule playbook, and then you they, they exactly whatever you, you whatever. try to play play by the rules the best you can. Yeah. Exactly. The least amount of tax. Right? And then yeah. the, as long as you do what the government wants you to do, uh, you get a reward back, and that could come back as like a write off or like uh, you know. Exactly. Well, yeah. there's a reason why business owners are incentivized more than employees because businesses are more have more flexible deductions because we need businesses to employ employees. Need, exactly. Yeah. That's what right? runs the economy. So the right? government wants yeah. to incentivize the economy in yeah. order mm-hmm. to incentivize the economy or incentivize business owners to to induce the economy, right? Yes. You got to incentivize. So them. so it's not an inequality as uh, 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 people would uh, like to Yeah, there's say, different you know? perspectives on yeah. it, right? But I think I think you know risk and reward, right? Business owners take on take more so risk. So much risk, right? right? They 100%. take a lot of risk. They take mm-hmm. investment risk, right, with their mm-hmm. money, their capital, what have you. So some people won't take CCA, right? Or some people will, their expenses, if you're in the GTA, right? Like, and you're not cash flowing, um, sometimes your revenue might be just slightly higher than all your expenses because you have such a large mortgage and your rents are usually your rent to purchase price ratio in the GTA is much uh, lower than it is in Sudbury or Timmins or more cash flowing markets like that, right? Now, if you're holding that long-term rental in a corporation, right? that, that income is taxed at 50%. Now, mind you, some of that tax is recoverable uh, when the corporation pays out dividends. It's a little bit out of scope for this conversation, but just keep in mind that some of it is recoverable. But the reason why um, it's taxed at 50% in a corporation is because it's passive income, right? So the government sees passive income as uh, you're not putting in as much work, uh, and so it's taxed heavier. Right. And passive income is really anything that has to do with like, you know, rents, royalties, interest or dividends. So in this case, we're talking about rents. Now, in a corporation, you can take your CCA and, and basically bring your income to zero. Right. If you have enough uh, building cost to, to 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 depreciate and whatnot. But the long term rental strategy for that reason. Right. Is is really kind of I'm I'm, get, I'm, I'm trying to aim to get out of the long term rentals. Right. Because uh, right now, 50 percent tax. Yes, you can take CCA and whatnot. But. Because my strategy wasn't from the outset built around, you know, cash flowing properties and the Burr strategy. And I wasn't really educated on all those strategies at the beginning when I first started. Um, Now I'm looking to do a little bit more of those. But a lot of the properties I had bought were pre-construction properties. And so because I I started to realize that, okay, yeah, I have a lot of equity gains in these properties. um, I can either liquidate these 
these gains right now and then reinvest them into longer term rentals in better cash flowing markets. Um, but some of these properties I, I, I have, a, I find they're a little bit unique if they're in good locations and they're brand new. I started to realize, okay, you know what? These are suitable for Airbnb. And so most newer investors who own, um, properties that they renovate and they don't want to deal with long-term tenants, sometimes get an Airbnb property management company to come in and furnish their property and run Airbnb and either Either they just pay some long-term rent or they do a revenue share program, right? Where the Airbnb property manager takes a percentage. Mm -hmm. And so um, you, have to, you have to remember now, when you go from long-term rental to Airbnb, Airbnb is considered active income. So that's huge because you're now, you're now considered active because why is it active income? Because... Yeah. You're managing guests. You're managing maintenance. You're managing. You're putting in more work. You're putting it's in more work. Passive. It's not. It's not it's really. A, essentially, as you're running a hotel. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So it's now considered active income. So now imagine. Uh, Sorry, I think you said. I think you meant it's not considered passive income. It's not considered a passive income, but yes. it's active income. Yes. And active income. If you're a resident corporation in Canada, like a CCPC, Canadian Controlled Private Corporation, and you are eligible for the small business deduction, you can. You can get away with paying just twelve and a half percent on active profits, income, right? Okay, right. Okay. So imagine paying twelve and a half percent, not dealing with long-term tenants. Mind you, it's, you're you're more heavily involved in the business, right? Yes. Like the the business is is a lot more than just running, giving keys to a tenant. A little bit more months. risk as well. A little bit more risk, yeah. right? But with Airbnb, uh, the tax advantage is huge, right? So mm -hmm. all your furniture again is going to be CCA. Um, and you can write off all that stuff uh, against the income you're making on Airbnb, and it's twelve and a half percent, right? In a corporation, you don't need to pull it all out. And if you have a holding company above this Airbnb management company that's uh, making all this revenue, uh, you can pay an intercompany dividend up tax-free, and then your holding company with the money that's only been taxed 12 and a half percent can then go out and buy a fiveplex or a sixplex or buy any other real estate by putting, you know, let's just say if it's commercially financed, like 25% down with those profits that have only been taxed at 12 and a half percent. Right. So, um, with that in mind, I've kind of now switched up my strategy to taking a lot of these. I have, don't get me wrong. I have liquidated a, a one or two of those pre-construction properties to, uh, become less leveraged because yeah. of the nature of the market and the conditions in the market right now and rising interest rates and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. And because the market had gone on such a run, you know, I had saw, I had, I luckily hit the peak on one of those properties when I sold. Amazing. But the other properties um, that I kind of want to keep in the portfolio for a longer term um, that are new that I don't want to sell because, you know, they're either really unique or um, I think uh, they'll do well on Airbnb. I'm switching up the strategy and now trying to run them on Airbnb. So remember, Airbnb, you want, so these are not like, you know, properties like condos, right? Like I personally think you want to have a detached property, at least for Airbnb. Um, you want to be in a good location, right? Uh, so on and so forth. So I'm taking these newer properties, turning them, converting them from long-term rentals into Airbnbs. Um, and uh from there, right now, I just started a new company. We just formed a company. We're basically doing Airbnb management. So there's going to be a Airbnb active company that's going to be managing all those properties. And eventually, once we get to super old status, uh, the goal would be to then take 
a lot of these other properties that are have been renovated that other investors have that are uh that are that would do well on airbnb and manage those properties as well what if you can have an investment property and you lease it out to me at 2500 a month which is your monthly market rent and i think it's an eligible candidate to be uh to do well on airbnb i'll commit to you saying okay let's sign a lease for 2500 a month and with 2500 a month let's then um take that uh sorry 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 let me rewind again uh, so, you know, going back to your earlier point about, mm. you know, what if I don't want to deal with long-term tenants or deal with the potential of non-paying tenants, yes. right? You could, I could look at you and say, Hey, you know what? That property is, will do well on Airbnb. Mm -hmm. I'll pay you the 2,500 a month, mm -hmm. which is all you want. You just want to make sure you yes. get your rent. Yeah. And all my proposition to you is going to be, well, what if nobody's going to take that care of that property better than me because every two to three days or every week that the guest is checking out, the, I'm having a cleaner mm -hmm. come in there. I'm, uh, I'm You're doing a full inspection on it. You know what's going on in the property. We know what's going on in the property. Right. And, and I'm giving you the assurance that you're going to get 2,500 every month too. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm more reliable maybe more than any other yeah. tenant. If I have a portfolio that's doing that. Right. Exactly. So obviously I'm not getting to that level yet yeah, but that's a goal for sure that's the goal for sure mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. that's very smart man so that's crazy so it's kind of like okay so you're essentially doing airbnb arbitrage well the this the case i just gave is airbnb yeah. arbitrage okay. but with my own properties it's i guess yeah with you your, could, yeah no with you your could, own properties it's not really arbitrage yeah. yeah it's not really arbitrage but it's arbitrage when you're doing it with uh, other 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 people's, other, pro other yeah. people's, people's properties, properties right yeah. opp so, opp mm. yeah <laughs> no, not opm yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh so so there you're kind of getting the advantages of tax because yeah. you're getting taxed at 12 and a half percent you're not dealing with long-term tenants and potential of non-payment of rent right um, you you are taking on a little more, bit of more risk yeah. because you don't know who's coming into your property. But mm -hmm. at the same time, Airbnb, you can vet um, who's booking your properties, right? You can look at the reviews that they have. Again, like there's going to be people who fall through the cracks and throw a party in your Airbnb and, Here and there. right? Like risk reward, right? Again. But the beautiful thing about Airbnb, because it's a more of a short term strategy, like just say you do get a shitty tenant that comes in or a shitty person who books it. You're not stuck with them for the next year or the next six months exactly. or one year. You're, they're exactly. out when they're out. Now, yeah. If, as long as it's under a month, I know there's some gray area where if they stay past a month, then it, it could be construed as a month-to-month yeah, yeah, yeah. tenancy. They go, they go the month there month, is yeah. some uh, gray area there, which uh, I don't know the exact rules, so I won't comment on it. But let's just say you have a seven-day uh, seven short-term stay, and the, the person's there the eighth or the ninth day. You can call the cops, and it's trespassing. Right, you can call the police and oh, yeah. it's trespassing. Right, oh, yeah. it's not like you need to go through the, the landlord the board and, and all that. Stuff. You need to go to the sheriff and you all that. You don't need shit. to go yeah, to yeah, the yeah. landlord and tenant board mm. because the landlord and tenant board is for landlord and tenant. It's a whole big process. When for you're that, when right? the relationship is landlord and tenant, this is not landlord and tenant. Mm -hmm. This is more so. Um, this, is, this is a, a short term stay. A short term stay. Short term yeah, stay. Yeah, yeah. So so you can call it trespassing and mm -hmm. you can call the police and have them out of there. Right. So okay. There's there's certain there's benefits to a lot of, lot of pros, man. There's a lot of pros, and to you know I you think, have the yeah. potential to make so much more income in that one month versus exactly right? exactly, yeah. exactly exactly. So going back to pre-construction, uh, what areas have you invested in pre-construction, and uh, and also tell me about some of your success stories that you've had with pre-con because I you know sure, sure. I know I know you have a bunch. Sure, mm. sure. So my 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 tax auditor role was in Hamilton the first year out of uni. So I was driving in Hamilton trying to figure out what what was. Uh, what the city was about. What the where, where the prime real estate opportunities were. Where, right? where the prime real estate opportunities were. So <laughs> all the pie shaped lots. All mm. the pie shaped lots. <laughs> 
This guy was talking about my five shape vlog. I like, know last night. Oh my god! <laughs> so I was so I'm dying at that. Yeah. Um, I didn't know much about Hamilton actually. So I was just after work. I'd drive around. I'd see you know oh start starting now towns from the four hundreds right. You see all those signs yep. back then for precon. So I just sign up on all these builder lists right, and then when the condo closed in 2018, I took a line of credit out and. I was ready to, I was like eager to put, put down on some, on some properties. Right. So I was like thinking, okay, you know what? And again, my, my investment knowledge at this point is very rudimentary, right? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I didn't know anything about Burr or, or long-term investing, which I think, you know, at that time, if you had done it, the timelines were quicker because here I'm waiting two years for a property to finish. Right. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, um, the thing I found the most attractive was the low deposits. So I would find the projects with builders that had low deposits. So like where I can buy a property for like 450 and put just $50,000 down or $26,000 down. So were those, an interesting were, were one. all those builders like reputable or reputable? Just, yeah, yeah. Very. Did you make like, sure? yeah. So in Hamilton, I was looking at the biggest builders in Hamilton, which yeah. are Lozani and Mars homes. There's a couple really reputable, good builders over yeah. there, Brant Haven. Right. So, the first two I put down on was Mars Homes and Lozani Homes. So Mars needed 50000 over five months and Lozani was like $26,000 over six months. Wow. So there was one town that I scooped up for like 435000 and believe it or not, the deposit I had to put down was $26,000. So I put $26,000 down over six months, all from the line Damn, of credit. son, where'd you find this? Uh yeah, no, I, no, no, I was no, that's, on that's, all those. That's like ad lib. That's like ad lib. Yeah. I was on. I was on all <laughs> like all these builders were emailing right. Yeah. And as soon as I as soon as I saw that uh, it was twenty six thousand dollars, they usually have like a family friends round, then a VIP round, then the general public. And on this VIP round, it was a low deposit, twenty six thousand dollars. So, anyways, I in my head. Sorry to get it. How do you get onto the VIP uh, list? Yeah, that's a great. You question. just get. You just gotta sign up quick. It was all about signing up quick and getting there, being the first in line, whatever mm-hmm. have you, right? Mm-hmm. So there were stories where me and my buddy would camp out all night just oh, to shit. get in the okay. get oh, in this the is line. A lineup pre-construction. The lineup thing. pre-construction yeah. at the before COVID. You I'm know? glad you uh, lined up for a pre-construction instead of lining up for like a PS3 or something. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then and then taken three days later, they only released 10, 10 detached homes and we're eleventh in line, so we didn't oh, even shit. get one, right? Wow. Okay. So there were times I'll give yeah. you the good pre-con and the yeah. bad pre-con opportunities too. So, anyways, that town that was four thirty-five ended up uh, like in. February, the peak, uh, it was at 900000 I mean, now it's probably worth like maybe 800 But still, like, you're looking at about a $400,000 gain off of um, what spun off as a $26,000 deposit started off as, right? Mind you, if you have to close with 20% down, then you bring the rest of the money. But the way I kind of looked at it was if I can put down $50,000 on this property, and in two years, if it goes up by 50000 before I have to bring the rest down, Remember, mind you, this is unrealized. Like you don't own it yet until you take title, right? So I'm just speaking in terms of like unrealized gain. Yeah. Um, if it goes up by a hundred thousand and you end up taking title and you end up owning it, I kind of looked at it as okay. I put fifty, I made a hundred. That's enough for me, right? So that was the basic, basic, basic parameters I was kind of using to, to, to invest in at that time, right? So that was a really good one. And then there was a project in Kingston, where. Uh, Sage, which if you went to water, if you went to university in Waterloo, you knew like you, they were at like Sage Ten in Waterloo at this time, right? So they were on the tenth building of of student luxury rental. So that was the that was the segment of real estate that this builder was specialized in. So when they went to Kingston, all the housing supply there for students is pretty di- like it's it's very low quality housing. 
So they wanted to bring a luxury. So this was the first building of its kind. This was Sage One in Kingston. Damn. Put it that okay. way. Okay. Right? Yeah. So yeah. I was like, this is a no-brainer. I saw this happen in Waterloo for four years. Like, this is going to be a great building. Okay. Every student who has money and whose parents are willing to pay premium for their luxury rental while they're studying is going to want to rent from me if I own a unit in this yeah. building. Yeah. So I bought a unit. A couple of friends bought a unit. My dad bought a unit. Now, this is where, you know, the risks of pre-con come in. I bought the unit for 230000 one bed, one bath parking. It was like, just like no brainer pricing, right? And so I bought it and then a year and a half later goes by. And mind you, what was really attractive about this property is because a lot of the land around uh, Queens University and Kingston in general is heritage protected. So you can't just tear it down and rebuild it, right? So yeah. the fact that they were able to get a permit for a building close to Queens was huge. That was number one. Number two was the fact that it was like the first ever luxury student building of its kind, mm-hmm. right? So a year and a half passes by. They obviously, as you know, builders don't sell all their inventory all up front pre-construction, right? Like they, they hold a few units to sell in phases. Or they sold some units sometimes to sell at closing, right? So a year and a half later, they release more units and they're $150,000 up in price that they're selling them for. And there's a, like, I get a notice from the builder that says, hey, your unit has changed in terms of like what was, uh, has has had some minor changes. Um, We're going to refund your deposit and we're going to cancel the agreement of purchase and sale. So I was like, what? Like, are you kidding me? I just, you know, put down like this money. I was so, so excited thinking, Oh, I'm up a hundred thousand, hundred and fifty thousand. Like I just gotta wait till clo- wait to close this and I'm sure it'll be higher. And no, like the builder basically said, like, you know, we're gonna cancel. And what happened happened. I don't I don't know if this actually, you know, transpired, but their argument to me was that there was a step back requirement during their finalizations with the permit on the building. The step back requirement involved them um, moving the building back from the sidewalk a certain amount. And apparently my my unit was on the front of that building and had to be altered in order to satisfy that requirement. So they kind of used that as a way to get out of the agreement with me to sell the unit for $150,000 higher <clears throat> to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's an, that's like... It that's happens. uh it happens yeah, right like yeah. precon is risky that's the one thing i want to i want to put out there right the builders it can have be, the power right but mind you you, of, you still get your deposit back the only downfall is that you're deposited and collecting i mean the interest they were reputable exactly yeah. because the interest rates were low enough that deposits were not required to have interest paid on by the builders um i got my deposit back because it was a reputable builder again it was a reputable builder at the end of the day so <clears throat> they didn't take my deposit i've heard of projects where they get canceled and the deposits are not returned yeah like or delayed like for a while before they're returned wow. right i got mm-hmm. mine right away Amazing. back okay and so i took it and then i i was like you know what i want to i have to like my whole thing was recycle the money never hold cash because yeah. cash is Cash is trash, right? So um, in the sense of inflation is running up, I want to invest this somewhere else. So that first condo, I got on the board of directors at the condo because I was uh, really eager to learn more about real estate and you know how, the condo, how does the condo operate and whatnot. And so the, in the first two years of when a condo closes, you'll normally see that the builder manages the property because they want to 
there's, I think, an incentive and also... Um, they want to know what the building is. They want to create the systems. And then once they have the system set up, then they hire a third-party property management team and then they'll kind of transfer everything over to them. So you're right. The builder does, to an extent, manage the property for the first two years, which is kind of like a stabilization period, right? Like after it's built, um, what whatever kinks they need to work out with the building, they work out. And then later on, they move on from the building and a third-party property manager takes over. So... In the first two years on the board, though, I got to know the builder. And then the builder, by the way, this condo was an amazing condo. It was uh, Green Life Condos. So I think I don't know if some people know. I've seen, yeah. In Markham. Markham yeah, and 14th. Yeah, yeah. Usually the maintenance fees are like okay. super cheap. Right? Markham and like, 14th, yeah. there's a condo. Um, Kennedy and 14th, they have a build. So they're solar solar panel buildings. So the electricity is, uh, is uh, solar for the common elements. Uh, there's geothermal heating and cooling. And there's ICF, um, ICF, uh, so what do you... I, I believe they also collect rainwater or something too, right? To water the... So that was the, the commercial garden. building, the okay. commercial building that I bought into. So we'll get into that now. So the builder that I met tells me that, hey, I'm building a commercial building uh, at Markham and 16th, sorry, 4, 4 and 16th. Why don't you talk to my inside sales rep, Mitch? I was like thinking, you know what? Um, maybe owning a small office down the line will be good. Worst case, it'll be my swim school sales salespeople's office, or it'll be a real estate office, or it'll be an accountant's office, right? I I was just dabbling in so many things. Yeah. Um. At that point, and then uh, until I fully got into real estate full time and and uh, and and tax, but um at that point I was like I want to deploy the money, so I ended up buying the smallest unit there. It was about six hundred and sixty three square feet. And uh, for those who don't know, commercial precon actually comes in as a shell unit. So um, they give you the base building uh, in a shell. Your your unit comes as a shell. You get you know your electrical panel, your HVAC system, and base building sprinklers, right? And then after that, you you apply to the city with your permit and your drawings based on how you want to design the space for your business, mm-hmm. right? That's kind of the whole thing about commercial precon. So. Uh, it was a low deposit, right? I, I So I basically took that deposit, put it down there, and <clears throat> the plan was to use the swim school income to finance the mortgage on the commercial property, right? So fast forward later, um, and, and the builder was really nice. He gave me you know a small discount. Any of my commissions that I was going to earn on the unit, I, I deducted because, again, rather than having it, so tax tip, it, rather than having the income paid out to me and being taxed on, yeah. I just had it deducted off the cost of the property right okay yeah rather than it coming to me and being taxed tax. yeah yeah mm-hmm. so i ended up buying that property uh for about two hundred and forty three thousand. right shell unit spent about eighty five thousand dollars uh building it out and then there was about ten ten thousand dollars in interest costs because i took some private private money and the reason why is because the swim school got shut down as this property got closed, right? So that's where I'm saying like, you know, you you, you have a plan, but you got to be ready to react with the, or have a backup plan to, to close. So I ended up selling the first condo because there was a considerable gain and I had lived in the condo for two years. And so it was eligible for the principal residence exemption, which is a, a, a tax rule that essentially says that if you occupy the place of residence, uh, as your principal residence, which means you ordinarily inhabit the property. And there's a few criteria. If you meet that criteria, the ta- the gain on sale is tax-free. So I wanted to, rather than continue to rent that rental property and have that sizable gain, 
um, split up over more number of years where it would have a change in use and become a rental property and that gain would eventually be taxed when I sell it. I just thought, you know what, it's up, uh, it's up about 250K. I can sell it now and um, pay no tax on that capital gain and move on. So for two reasons, it was good. One, I, I hadn't paid no tax on the capital gain. And two, I was able to take uh, about a decent amount of that cash to close on the shell unit. I took some other private capital as well to close on it. Um, built it out, you know, using the Home Depot uh, credit card and whatnot, 0% interest. Mm-hmm. Built it out, took lines, built it all out. Again, I had no financing for this. I just did it in cash. My goal was to turn around the build in about four months. We turned it around in about five and a half months after like from applying to the permit to closing the permit inspections approved everything else. Right. So that was a good learning process. Right. I I got a contractor to do the parts that were, you know, involved the permit. And then I I even sourced some supplies and it was a good learning process to like understand the build out and, and the permit process. Right. So once the office was built, I, so at this point I transitioned into real estate full time. And Mm -hmm. so like, I was like, perfect, we'll use this for the, for the brokerage office. Right. So, I mean, before that Mitch, who was the commercial rep who sold me that office ended up becoming my commercial partner for the brokerage. So that, that brokerage Granville Realty, it's just a, uh, like, you know, for the listeners, um, uh, the brokerage was really something that I know a lot of people say that, you know, you want to get a, a, a decent amount of uh, years of experience under your belt before starting your brokerage. But the goal was not to, you know, have 50 agents or anything like that. We just kind of wanted to be a boutique brokerage where uh, Mitch was covering all the commercial sales and I was covering all the residential side. And it was essentially what we've done is kind of built a, a brokerage focused on, you know, novice investors and first time home buyers and helping them navigate the real estate market in a tax efficient way, right? So that's that's what I like to um, focus on with my buyers and sellers, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think this is a, an aspect of real estate that gets overlooked a lot, right? Like, cause think about it, like when you're buying a property, right? You get your mortgage broker involved, you get your lawyer involved, you get um, yourself involved, right? Yeah. And you buy the property, but maybe you could have, you know, uh, gotten and uh, maybe you could have pulled out thirty thousand from your RSP for your first time home buyer uh, on your first time home if you had spoken to your accountant too, right? Yeah. So, so it's like a full service. So it's, it's kind of a thing. full service, exactly. We, our whole thing is, you know, all the services under one roof. So, yeah. um, now that's from the buying perspective. Now imagine you're selling, right? Your 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 realtor tells you, you know, okay, yeah, you know, you want to sell your property because you're going through a divorce, right? Well, usually, you know, taxes happen and next, like this year's taxes are filed next year and nobody really thinks about it. They sit down with their accountant and then they tell their accountant, well, hey, you know, I sold uh, my rental property last year. Um, and then your accountant tells you, well, you know, you're going to have to pay this much tax, right? But if you had had that consultation at the time you were deciding which property to liquidate, you could have maybe figured out, okay, um, which one should I liquidate? that will still get me the funds I need and uh, while to saving do it, the most amount while of saving you taxes. the most amount of tax, right? So like what's, what's the strategy to go about that <clears throat> from a tax perspective, but not just the selling perspective, right? Because selling the property, closing the property, that's, that's easy, right? But you know, at the end of the day, when you have to pay tax on it, not everyone likes that and is ready for that. So you want to get your accountant involved in your situation. And that's why I'm saying, you know, all this stuff I'm, I'm saying is for information, but, um, 
everyone's situation is different yeah. and you got to get your power team right which when you're in real estate is your realtor your accountant your mortgage broker your lawyer in my opinion the accountant is 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 an important one right so mm-hmm. um that's my advice you know just just give your accountant a call saying yo listen this is what i'm gonna do with my assets or my real estate uh what is going to be my tax liability and how do i reduce that and so that's what we focus on at grand v realty we focus on number one teaching the strategies <clears throat> to novice investors about um, their options when it comes to investing in real estate and then number two what their tax obligations are but also their the the ways to save tax or go about it in the most tax efficient manner right so um, tax planning tax consulting that's what I do as part of uh, the real estate sale so um, what are so, some of like the the common questions you get from your first time home buyer so some of them are saying to me okay well Terrence like what are the like some of them don't really bring it up because they don't really know. So yeah. I'm the one to kind of bring it up and say, "Hey, is this your is this your first property?" So some of them might have, um, <clears throat> like, let's just say your your fiancés, right? And you want to buy your first property. Well, if if both of you are able to buy your own property on your own, I would advise them, "Hey, you know what? Why don't you buy your property uh, on your own right now, and then you go buy your partner goes and buys her property on her own." And then you guys get married. So then that way you get the land transfer tax credit for each of you on both of those properties. Whereas if you get married, your land transfer tax becomes only one land transfer tax credit that merges, right? So you can only get the benefit on one property. But if you both use that up individually before you get married on your own properties, when you get married, uh, you, you'll have at least exhausted that credit, right? So there's that's, that's a tax advantage that most people might not know of and then how to uh, <clears throat> maximize it with their partner another one might be your rsp right um if you d- if you contribute to your rsp um and have those funds in there 90 days before closing you can use those as part of a down payment on your home and pull them out of your rsp without penalty mind you you need to recontribute that over the next 15 years um, and you get a break after the f- on the first year after closing, right? So you don't have to recontribute anything back in the first year, but after that, you you've got to do at least equal amounts over the next 15 years mm-hmm. to pay it all back into your RSP. But it's huge, right? Because not only not only are you um, getting a tax deduction off of um, your income, which is what is re- which is how you get the resulting tax refund, right? Because let's just say you had sixty thousand in income. And you paid just to keep it simple, six thousand in taxes, right? If you deduct ten thousand of that and you contribute to your RSP in your in in the year before you buy your home, let's just assume that you get a thousand dollars in um in uh, our in in tax refund. You can use not that tax refund to increase your down payment, and usually it's more than a thousand bucks, right? It could be anywhere from six to seven thousand, depending on your tax bracket, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so. That can also help boost your down payment, right? Which is which is hard for many people to do, mm-hmm. right? Uh, mm-hmm. Not just the amount of money you're pulling out of your RSP, but also the resulting tax refund that comes from that, right? So there's a deduction there. And then um, what else, right? And then sometimes people are, uh, again, buying, buying it for investment. So I educate them on what expenses you can write off and how to go about filing the tax return at the end of the year for your rental property, right? If it is a rental property. 
And then what if um, this is your sixth rental property? Should you be incorporating or should you consider a corporation to hold your properties in, right? Like at what point in time does that come in handy, right? So these are all questions like we can get into it for hours. Yeah, right? but yeah, yeah. Hopefully yeah. these are the most common ones yeah. like for mm-hmm. buyers. So these are also like unique ways that you kind of service your clients outside of the standard realtor, right? Exactly. So, that's yeah. that's really the competitive advantage, mm-hmm. right? So I've kind of figured out how to leverage um, the CPA aspect of uh the designation as well as the education that comes with that and real estate because i think they're pretty complementary and that um like i said like it it should be one of your members on your power team like you should be considering your tax implications and obligations whenever you're buying and selling yeah and at the same time because that's how you build wealth right yeah exactly 100 percent. like well building wealth um like the the richest people that's you always keep, right? that's yeah it they, they, it's whatever you what like everything that you're saving on tax right yeah. can be reinvested right exactly so, you can be reinvested back into more swimming classes you know learn how to do uh, <laughs> while, while while you're doing like a backstroke he's uh, he's also teaching you how to legally <laughs> save on your taxes right oh, well, we're out of the swim business now but uh, yeah the time I'm, value I'm of joking. money the time value of money nowadays is uh, so actually when COVID came back. Um, People were asking, you know, whether we're going to revive it or not. But unfortunately, that business, you know, it took a it took a real hit. Um, you know, we were we were because we kept being optimistic about the fact that things might reopen, might reopen, might reopen. And so um, I was eating costs on keeping the database running and paying for other things and thinking we're going to open and then shutting down and opening and shutting down. And so um, that business uh, kind of uh, took its toll over the two years. And so it didn't really uh didn't really one make sense to revive and two it was pretty much uh pretty much kind of uh i've moved on you've moved on but if i can make a special request if you can actually reschedule our tax consultation um while you're teaching me how to swim as well i'm not, I'm not the strongest swimmer so i was wondering if you can know we can talk we can talk yeah we'll talk off camera on that yeah exactly yeah, exactly yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. so all right, so so being a new agent and all, you know, naturally a new agent will want to join a team or they want to go to a broker that offers a lot of support. For you to completely like disregard that and just go in and <laughs> com- just go start a brand new brokerage, like what, like what, what, what inspired you to do that? And like, what, so, where did you look for guidance? And uh, like, what were you kind of falling back on? So I did, I did join a brokerage uh, to start off, um, uh, and then, and then I did then transition to going full-time on my own. And uh, I think a huge part of that is having a mentor. So I ha- I do have a mentor and uh, whenever I had to fall back on that, that's where I kind of, I, f- I fell back to. Um, and so I think that that was number one. And then number two, it was really just getting your, your hands and feet wet, right? Like you're just getting out there, getting deals done and going through experiences, you know, having deals go sour or having to be flexible with certain deals, right? There was a deal I did where I, I was close to double ending the deal and then my 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 buyer or sorry my seller for this condo I had bought him a pre-construction home that was going to close in December and he was like telling me Terrence it's March I don't want to sell nine months early and then pay 2000 a month in rent even though this is a good price so then I thought to myself I'm like okay you know what like how am I going to make this work because I do want my buyer and my seller to technically both be happy and if my buyer can have this property and my seller can also find a way to sell at a price that he wants to but figuring out his living situation in the interim uh at a lower cost could could basically get bring the deal together. So what I ended up proposing I said to him listen I have a, I my basement's unfinished 
If you give me a $60,000 loan off of your line of credit at 2% or 2.45 at that time, you're going to only pay 150 bucks a month on that uh, cost of capital. That's your co- that's that's the cost of your capital, 150 bucks. Loan me the 60,000. I'll finish my basement and I'll I'll rent it out to you for 750 a month instead of the market rent of like 14 or 1500 a month. So let's consider the 750 that discount I'm giving you as the total at at as loaning me the 60k at 12% for example, right? And, but you're only paying 2.45%. So your true cost is 750 plus your cost of capital which is 900 bucks. So it's cost you 900 bucks a month to live uh uh temporarily in my in my finished uh, basement until your home is ready. And for me, that's $900 that I was never going to see because I didn't have the $60,000 in capital to build out my basement to make that income anyway. So for the next six months. And the craziest thing is that once you build your basement, it's, it's, it's just built. It's built. And <laughs> when he leaves, I can charge market rent. There you go. Yeah. And it gave me the time to earn the $60,000 because and, I, was, I got into real estate. Right? And just so, for context, this is a, a pie-shaped lot <laughs> in Pickering. Oh, ravine lot. Walk-out basement. Yes. Fully renovated. Like all the appliances, yeah, yeah it's oh, stainless steel appliances. I told him I was gonna do it up to the nines for you, and the reason why I also did it up to the nines was because uh, the goal was to Airbnb that down the line, yeah, and yeah. now that's gonna be one of the units that uh, we 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 convert as well once uh, once once he leaves. But um, this episode is gonna be called Pie Shape Lot, eh? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this episode <laughs> sponsored by Terrence's Pie Shape Lot, right? <laughs> yeah, I know, man. Once the Airbnb makes money, then we can actually sponsor it. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, anyway, so then th- that's just like, that's, that's one example of, you know, making a deal work. Right. So in real estate, I think we're really matchmakers, right? Like yes. we're trying to make our sellers and our buyers happy and, uh, we want to do it in a, in, in, in a, a creative way, in a creative way. A that's creative that's really what it is. It's really right? like the art of the deal. Right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. in that situation, right. I, I was able to still get my buyer to buy his condo. The seller was happy at the sale price. He's happy because he's paying less rent until his home is ready. And he also gets the funds ahead of time. So he knows he's going to be ready for closing and whatnot, right? He, he, he really treasured that aspect of the security of selling now because he also didn't know what was going to happen to the market, right? So he, he was happy to sell at a, at a good time and, uh, and, and walk away with the proceeds. Awesome. So got some rapid fire tax questions for you. Sure. Sure. Yeah, let's them. do it. Let's you know, it. typical questions. Maybe a lot of people out there probably have these questions. Sure. And it's better hearing it from a CPA, you know? Sure, why not? Let's okay, for it. so say you're starting a business. When do you need a like a GST, HST account? Sure, so depending on the industry you're in, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, GST, well, irrespective of the industry, let's yeah. just say once you start um, making $30,000 worth of sales yeah. of taxable supply. So that means you're in an industry where you're selling a good or service that has uh, or that mandates HST, meaning HST is applicable on the sale of that good or service. Okay, so if you're a lawyer, you're charging HST. If you're an accountant, you're charging HST on your services. If you're a doctor, you're not charging HST, right? Uh, if you're selling medical glasses, you're not charging HST, right? So there what are categories. What if you have like an Amazon business, like an online Amazon business? That still it depends on what HST. you're selling. Okay, depends okay, on what okay, you're okay. selling, right? Okay. So, just I just gave some examples of what's HST applicable and what's not. Yeah. If you're selling what is and you're surpassing thirty thousand dollars in taxable uh, sales, yeah, then you need to register for HST. 
right? Okay. And what if so? What 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 is? How do you go about uh, following? You know, reporting your tax if you don't surpass thirty thousand. If you don't surpass thirty thousand, then you also don't get the other side of the uh, of the equation, which is the input tax credit. So, yeah. input tax credits are what you get uh, to claim when you buy those uh, supplies uh, or you incur any costs and services that you pay HST on to supply that good or service. So, let me give an example. If I'm selling, uh, let's say, toboggans, and I'm buying the toboggans from a supplier. For ten for ten dollars, uh, I'm paying them a dollar and thirty cents in HST, right? Ten dollars plus tax is eleven thirty. Dollar thirty that is HST. Mm-hmm. But I'm selling them for twenty dollars, so I'm collecting two dollars and sixty cents from my customer. Yes. So when you have an HST number, you have to remit two dollars and sixty cents to the government, but the government allows you to claim the dollar and thirty cents that you paid when you originally bought the toboggan. So net. Your net payable to the CRA is only a dollar and thirty cents. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. So that's how it kind of all works, the full equation. So if you don't hit thirty thousand, you just don't charge your customers HST, but you also don't get the input tax credit. Right? Yeah. So there are certain suppliers. So if you're a taxable supplier, so you're selling goods that are taxable, then you're collecting HST and you're claiming the input tax credit, right? Yeah. If you're in an industry where it's exempt, meaning the, the the sale of your good or service is exempt from HST, you don't collect HST even if you pass thirty thousand, and you don't get the input tax credit. And then there are uh, uh, suppliers or businesses that qualify under the zero rated context, yeah, which is where you collect. Sorry, which is where you don't collect HST, but you can claim the input tax credit on anything you buy. So that's the most lucrative one, right? Because you're not collecting HST, yeah. but you're always claiming the ITC, so you're always in a refund position when it comes to the what CRA. Kind of, what kind of, what's one example? Um, I'm pretty sure optometrists, when they sell glasses, those glasses are zero rated. So when they buy the glasses from the supplier, yeah. they pay HST, but sorry, when they, yeah, when they buy the glasses from the supplier, they pay HST, but when they sell them to the, the patient, they don't have to collect HST. So mm-hmm. that could be an example of a zero rated supplier, right? Okay. So you just, you just, uh, so for okay. anyone under 30,000, you're just reporting it as business income. No, you don't, you just you're don't just, register. You're just not charging HST. Yeah. 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 You could, yeah. if you wanted to get started early though, yeah. like, you don't want to wait till 30,000 and you're selling goods that are taxable. You could register for HST and start yeah. start charging HST and then start claiming the input tax credits. You can do that from day one. But the requirement is is when you pass 30,000 um, in a consecutive 12-month period. Okay. Right? Any 12-month period. Okay. And when when would you when is it advisable to incorporate your business? Say you're just starting out. So there's there's a few things you want to consider when you're incorporating, right? One, I think most people will quickly run to the tax benefit. Yeah. Yes, there's a tax benefit to incorporating. Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, right? Like uh, um, there's preferential uh, treatment of active income at twelve and a half percent, right? That can be uh, if not pulled out of your corporation, you can pay the twelve and a half percent, and it'll sit in your corporation. Yep. But Beyond just the tax benefits, right, where instead of taking all that income into your personal tax bracket and paying, you know, at the highest marginal rate, you're keeping it in the corporation and only paying 12.5%. So that's the main tax benefit of 
owning a corporation without getting into it too crazy. But then there's also the liability aspect, right? So if you're running a business in an industry where there's potential, uh, potential or greater than average potential for lawsuits or, or, uh, exposed liability, you want to run in a corporation or you run your business in a corporation because your business is its own entity. Then a corporation Mm -hmm. is its own entity then. Um, and, uh, it, it has its own tax return. It's recognized as its own entity. It can be sued and it can sue somebody else. Right. And so that's another reason why you want to hold, um, things in a corporation. Let me give an example. Uh, banks will want you to hold your real estate. Let's just say if I'm running a storefront and I own the store and I'm also own the business, the bank will want me to create a separate holding company for the real estate and have a separate company for the business because if the business gets sued, the property property is creditor protected. It's protected Mm -hmm. from the liability of the business. So they can sue the business, but the property will be held in a separate corporation, right? So that's just to give you an example of the liability aspect of it, right? So Mm -hmm. there's various things you need to consider, those two being the main ones. And so if you make 60,000 in your business, and you need all $60,000 to fund your lifestyle. Well, nothing is le- being left in the corporation. Yeah. So there's no point of you incorporating, yeah. right? If you need the money you're earning is funding your lifestyle at that rate, like you're burning it all um, and you need it all or you're investing some of it. So you, you don't want to invest in a corporation for whatever reason and you want to invest personally uh, in your TFSA, for example, right? Then you have to pull the money out personally to be able to put it in your TFSA. So then it makes no sense to incorporate. But what if you're making $250,000 as a realtor? And now this is new for realtors too, right? Now you can have a uh, your own corporation. It's called a PREC, a personal real estate corporation. Before, all realtors, all their income was was added to their personal brackets. So you can imagine if you made a million dollars after uh, a certain point, you're paying 50% tax, right? Mm-hmm. Now, Let's use realtors as a good example of that. If you're making a million dollars as a realtor, you're not using a million dollars to fund your lifestyle, right? Unless you're really lavish. Some, like, somewhere. Like heaven. <laughs> 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 but uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're not, which is most realtors are not spending a million dollars. And I mean, mind you, they're not making a million dollars either. But let's just say the number one realtor in, in Pickering, for example, is making a million dollars. $900,000 of that they don't need. They can keep it in their prec now and only pay 12.5%. Well, sorry, it's up to $500,000 is the small business deduction, right? So let's just yeah. say they make uh, 500K just to keep it simple and they need 100K for their lifestyle. Well, they can keep 400,000 taxed at 12.5% in their corporation versus bringing that 400,000 into their personal income and paying 50% uh, tax even at the highest marginal bracket. What, b- besides just like the 12% uh, corporate tax, what's a benefit of keeping uh, that 400000 in the corporation? Like, w- wouldn't you rather uh, send it to your personal and then, you know, it, use that money towards some sort of investments like stocks, crypto, or like real estate? Yeah, you. I mean, you can invest in stocks, crypto, and and in real estate even within your corporation, right? Which is kind yeah. of the beauty of it, right? But it's a higher tax. Uh, it's a higher taxable event, no? It's it's fifty percent uh, tax on investment income. Yes, but some of that is recoverable. Remember, I was saying earlier um, when you pay out dividends. But the idea is is that okay? Let's just say you're paying fifty percent tax even on your on your um on your on your additional income. 
if you pull that $50,000 out and you're already making 250K, you're paying 50% marginal rate on that. So let's just say you take 50,000 profit out and you're at making 250, you're gonna pay 25,000 of that in tax and only have $25,000 now to invest, right? Versus that 50,000, if it pays 12.5%, think about how much more capital you now have to go back and invest, right? We can do the time value of money and the mm-hmm. after-tax impact yeah, and all yeah, that yeah. stuff, but mm-hmm. in general, yeah. right? you see where I'm going with this, yeah. right? Like if you're in a high tax bracket personally, it makes sense to keep it in the corp and you can do, you don't even have to just invest it in things. If, 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 if stocks or dividends are taxed um, higher, well then uh, uh, pay, pay, pay an intercompany dividend tax-free to your holding company and then go and buy a five-plex and a solid five purpose-built five-plex and take that and go commercially finance, use that money that's only been paid 12.5% tax mm-hmm. down on the property at 25% down. And hopefully it's a cash flowing property so it carries itself and, and, and qualifies uh, on the mortgage side. And then whatever rental income you have, use your CCA to write it off against it. Now, as long as you're ha- okay with the recapture down the line or not going to sell it anytime soon, then you'll make zero, you'll pay zero in tax and you only pay 12.5% on that. Uh, only 12.5% tax on that income. Alrighty, man. That that was a, a wealth of knowledge that you just spat out. Like, I've learned so many things. I would have to rewatch this episode a couple times to <laughs> really, really take it all in. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, yeah, is there no anything problem. you want to kind of leave us off with? Any any last minute messages? I think uh, I think we covered a lot. We mm-hmm. kind of jumped all over the place. So I apologize mm-hmm. if it was uh, if it was a little um, mixy. But that that really is a story. You know, I, I kind of uh, went from. Um, realizing that being an employee was not everything it was uh, kind of meant to be. You know, in school, we're kind of taught and groomed to, to kind of be an employee when we get out, right? And so I think if you're kind of in a position right now where you're kind of thinking, you know what, I want to make that next step. I want to challenge myself and start a business. Go for it. That would be my first and foremost advice. I think you're never too young to start a business. Um, through the episode, I think you probably know by now there's a lot of tax advantages when you own a business. And the reason for that is because uh, the tax system rewards risk, right? And so we have to induce the economy and businesses have to hire employees. That's why they get more benefits and advantages, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking about starting a business, think of the skills that you have that you can leverage and look at the industry as a whole and see if there's potential there. And if you can and you have a competitive advantage, go for it. Um, that's kind of like, you know, why, how we built Grandview Realty, right? It was based on the fact that, okay, we can do real estate. Everybody buys and sells homes, but we're going to do it differently. We're going to bring the accounting and tax equation and, and advisement into, uh, into our real estate uh, dealings with our clients and integrate that service and cover all ends of the spectrum, right? That's why we have mortgage brokers, the lawyers in our network on top of now myself as, as the tax advisor and, and agents that um, understand and identify when those conversations need to be had and um, they're had with me. And so I, I enjoy thoroughly uh, advising people on, you know, the tax implications when it comes to real estate. And that's what I do. So if, if there's any anything or any time anybody has a question or or wants to reach out to, to, to understand, you know, where those two kind of cross sect or what their situation is, I'm more than happy to run through the situation and see how I can help from a tax perspective, as well as from a real estate, real estate 
perspective and um, I think it's important to uh, if you're you know a novice investor work with an investor focused realtor mm-hmm. you know someone who has experience uh, dealing with investments and um, and um, you know buying and selling and uh, and also probably identifies an accountant as part of their power team right all right guys so if you guys uh, made it this far into the podcast we appreciate you make sure you guys uh, like follow subscribe mm-hmm. uh, all of our uh, Instagrams and uh, links are in, in in the description down below and uh, Terrence how, how do, how, do uh, how does anybody uh, reach out to you uh, so I'm on Instagram it's uh, realtor Terrence r-e-a-l-t-o-r Terrence t-e-r-e-n-c-e uh, on Instagram uh, soon uh, we're, uh, we're starting a tax practice uh, I found that there's a you know lack of uh, tax uh, knowledge and advisement on real estate out there so um, I'm starting a small tax practice and uh, equipping that with staff right now so um, and going through the process of formalizing that so if and when uh, we'll have an Instagram handle there but you'll see it on my Instagram page so if you need anything accounting tax related and real estate related feel free to reach out and other than that I appreciate you guys thanks for having me on the podcast uh, I had no idea I was uh, just a second guest I uh, hope uh, there was you know some nuggets that people can take take away from and mm-hmm. uh, really uh, use and uh, just remember you know everyone's situation is different uh, I, I hope there was some good general knowledge to identify where you might be feeling you need advice and uh, get that from your professional accountant or realtor uh, with respect to whatever field it is. And uh, if that has to be me too, I'm more than happy to help. Mm. Also, guys, a lot of the nuggets, we're going to be uh, compressing them down into TikToks and Reels. So if you guys follow us on TikTok and Instagram, all the links are down below. You guys can actually rewatch all of his, uh, all the nuggets that he dropped on the podcast. Uh, make sure you check him out as well. Uh, he's always dropping a bunch of knowledge on his pages. He does a lot of uh, live seminars and stuff as well. Um, but yeah, man, I appreciate you coming on uh, the show. And, sure. uh, you know, it's, and there's one thing that's possible. And what is that, bro? What, 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 what's possible? Wealth is possible, but also uh, getting there quicker by uh, doing it in a tax-efficient way. Making the right moves. That's yeah. how the wealthy get wealthy. So. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Also, also uh, pie-shaped lots. Tax. Yeah, and, and pie-shaped lots. Yeah. And, and <laughs> pie-shaped uh, also, shout-out to uh, Terrence's pie-shaped lot. We actually uh, <laughs> came here last night and had a... Came here for a tax consultation, but somehow ended up staying the night. And uh, <laughs> night, night got pretty hectic. But uh, we're, you know, we're, we're sitting, we're recording on the pie shape on lot. the pie shape lot. So shout out to the pie shape lot. We, we actually <laughs> increased uh, the equity of this home uh, after this uh, episode. So, oh yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. You know, uh, appreciate you guys being here, and mm-hmm. uh, make sure you guys subscribe so, so you guys can watch all of our cool interviews that we have. We have a bunch of uh, other. Uh, like-minded individuals that are going to be popping on the channel. Looking Hopefully. forward to seeing yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, yeah. Uh, yo, until next time. Perfect. Hold as possible. Take Thanks it easy. Lot, Peace. Take it easy. Take care.